last week the national terrorist threat level was raised to high this is primarily a signal to federal state and local law enforcement to take additional precautions and increase security measures against potential terrorist attacks these recent threats are a stark reminder that our country remains engaged in a war on terror our enemies are still determined to attack america and there is no such thing as perfect security against a hidden network of killers yet i assure you that our government at every level is responding to this threat working to track down every lead and standing watch 24 hours a day against terrorism we have posted more than 50,000 newly trained to federal screeners in airports we have begun inoculating troops and first responders against smallpox we are deploying the nation's first early warning network of sensors to detect biological attack and we are moving to better coordinate the efforts of law enforcement we are gathering the best information possible and using it to make sure the right people are in the right places to protect our citizens throughout the country joint terrorism task forces are bringing together federal state and local officials to fight terrorism Local police will be able to access federal terrorist information from their squad cars to determine whether individuals they have pulled over or detained have terrorist links. I've also asked Congress to fill a critical need in our defense against bioterror by committing almost $6 billion to quickly make available effective vaccines and treatments against agents like smallpox, anthrax, botulinum toxin, Ebola, and plague. Our nation is preparing for a variety of threats we hope never will arrive. Many of these dangers are unfamiliar and unsettling. Yet the best way to fight these dangers is to anticipate them. Welcome. To Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. I hope everybody had a good holiday season and it wasn't too dark of a winter for some out there. But picking up directly where our previous episode left off, titled the Wheel of Winter's Darkness, and Smallpox Bioterror Scares. This is part two of that episode. It's sort of a spiritual sequel to the 20th anniversary of the 2001 Anthrax Attacks series that I did on Media Roots Radio recently. Because the smallpox fear-mongering and the public policy that was put into place, and also proposed by the Bush administration was directly piggybacking off of the 2001 anthrax attacks. And in case you forgot where we left off in the previous episode, we ended it right after the Operation Dark Winter exercise that simulated a bioterrorist attack that started in Oklahoma City where terrorists release smallpox virus and create a pandemic. Now, keep in mind, this exercise took place in June 2001, so we're still not even at 9-11 yet. But several of the same players who would not only push 9-11 propaganda, but would have strange links to the attacks themselves participated in the Operation Dark Winter exercise, like Jerome Hauer of Kroll Associates, 
or James Woolsey, the former CIA director under Bill Clinton, or Judith Miller, the mysterious reporter who seemed to be the conduit for all bioterror and bioweapons leaks by insider officials. But obviously, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, go back and listen to that. Also, I recommend checking out our previous Amerithrax 20th anniversary of the 2001 Anthrax Attacks series, all three episodes that we put out. And I also recommend that you go back and check out an episode from about five years ago, a very long two-parter actually called Clinton's War on Terror. So you can understand how much bioterrorism and anthrax fear was in the air even before the Bush administration. But I'm going to start this podcast directly after the dark winter exercise on July 23rd, 2001. A Senate hearing called Combating Terrorism, the Federal Response to a Biological Weapons Attack is held. Sorry, this was actually a House hearing held by the Subcommittee on National Security, Veterans Affairs, and International Relations. Now, what this hearing was, was a recap, essentially, of the dark winter exercise. It included testimony from some of the participants in the exercise, including Jerome Hauer and Frank Keating. And it also included statements from people who were integral in constructing this exercise from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the neoconservative think tank in D.C. Now, a bunch of other people make statements, too, during this hearing. But what's most important about this hearing is that a lot of it is about anthrax. If you search for the entire transcript of this hearing, and a lot of things are actually redacted from it, strangely enough. Um, I'm not sure why that is. But if you search for anthrax, you get about seven results for anthrax. Now, here's one of the senators questioning Jerome Hauer during the hearing. He says, Mr. Hauer, I think it's unrealistic to think that hospitals are going to develop a surplus capacity and just have it on standby for an incident like this just because of the cost. I think the issue at this point in time is trying to figure out how, when we have an incident like this, whether it's anthrax, smallpox, or some other agent, we can rapidly increase capacity, both in existing facilities by augmenting staff and then finding alternate care facilities or casualty collection points where we can triage people who are sick with either smallpox or anthrax. Now, because Dark Winter was an exercise all about smallpox, obviously most of the discussion in this hearing of what agent terrorists would use or what was most dangerous was in relationship to smallpox. They talk about how our vaccine stockpiles for smallpox are very, very old and how they're not equipped to serve the public in case of a smallpox attack. This is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, this is just the type of fear-mongering that existed even before 9-11. So Senator Nunn, who's part of this hearing, says, smallpox, some type of biological attack against the United States. I'd say the probability of it happening in the next few years is very high. I think that's probably a greater threat than the nuclear, although we've got to be very zealous in trying to safeguard nuclear materials in the former Soviet Union. Now, this is interesting. This seems to have relationship to the anthrax attacks, which would occur just a few months after this hearing. Governor Keating says in this hearing, based on the exercise, he says, 
What I'm saying is the president with the governors, there is a relationship, I think, generally of goodwill. If something like this were to happen, he's talking about a smallpox or anthrax attack in a multi-state environment. And keep in mind, the anthrax attacks was an attack in a multi-state environment. He continues, the president will look to the governors to provide the execution, and the governors will look to the mayors and community leaders to provide for the execution of whatever the plan is to respond, and that plan has to be federally developed. Now, basically, the whole tone of this hearing is just fear-mongering amped up to 11, all of them saying that they were woefully underprepared for this scenario, and that it's going to be horrific if it happens, and that it's likely to happen. This is how much they had convinced themselves that this was a realistic scenario. And this is just the very early influence that Operation Dark Winter has over public policymaking and thinking. It continues to have an enormous influence in the years to come. And this is where it gets really cynical, I think. And this is how I think they could even convince people like, and I shit you not, Bernie Sanders to buy into all this fear-mongering as well. This is how they're able to convince people because they can spin it as making it seem like there's a public good angle to this, even completely apart from the counterterrorism angle. Now, I'll just read to you what it says. Now, this is a senator named, or sorry, this is a congressman named Mr. Shays who's opening this hearing. And he basically uses the dark winter exercise to say that there's a ray of hope shining through dark winter. It is sparked by this irony. Improving the public health infrastructure against a man-made biological assault today better prepares us to face natural disease outbreaks every day, just as biotechnologies can be used to produce both life-saving therapies and deadly pathogens. Public health capabilities are likewise dual use, enhancing our protection against smallpox attacks, by a terrorist and an influenza epidemic produced by Mother Nature. Now, I'm particularly interested in getting a hold of this hearing videotape of it. I wasn't sure if there was video of it because I couldn't find this on C-SPAN. But this is apparently what happened in the hearing. Uh, one of the congressmen says that the graphics in this Display will not be pleasant. Let me also emphasize, sir, this is a simulation. This had frightening qualities of being real. As a matter of fact, too real. And because we have television broadcasts, cameras here broadcasting, we want to tell everyone this did not happen. It was a simulation. But it had such realism, and we are going to try to show you the sense of realism that came from that today. Now, kind of fascinating statement, because this implies that there's other footage of Dark Winter beyond the newscasts uh, that I played for you in the last episode, which is the only thing that I know of that's been released to the public. This statement here implies that there's other visual aids from the Dark Winter exercise that are very disturbing, apparently, and they had to even, they had to release a trigger warning to people saying that this is a simulation, it's not real, don't freak out. You're going to be disturbed by some of this imagery today, and we have to warn people at home watching on TV. Well, where was this on TV? Because I can't find it on C-SPAN. July 23rd, 2001. Some of these subcommittees, you know, maybe some of the hearings, not all of them make it to C-SPAN. But unfortunately, this one didn't. And it seems like an important one uh, that should be available. So if anybody's listening and can find it, this might give us more footage of Dark Winter, even if it's just film with a camera you know, someone playing it off like a VHS tape in the hearing room or something. 
And just to cap this off with probably one of the most suspicious people who testifies in this hearing, Jerome Hauer, he says, smallpox is somewhat unique because unlike anthrax, where you have to disseminate the agent here in the country, where you have to go into the subways, you have to go into an environment like a building like this and spread it, they could actually infect these people just, you know, we have people who are suicide bombers who want to die for the cause. And with smallpox, you can infect these people overseas, send them into the country. They never have to be carrying the agent with them, so there's nothing to search. And as they become infected somewhere between the ninth to 12th day after they've been exposed, they then start riding the subways, come into buildings like this. They might have pox on them. But in the early stages, it would probably not raise a lot of concern. And they could actually be the carriers, the typhoid Marys, and spread this thing throughout the country. And we'd never know what hit us. Also, Jerry, I was going to call him Jerry Hauer. That's actually what he goes by. Jerome Hauer talks about the civil liberties implications of what we need to do. He says, well, I think there's a couple other important points. We need to address some of the issues of isolation and quarantine and the legal authorities necessary. We struggled with that throughout the exercise. Who has the authority to do what? How do we enforce it? At what point in time do we use force on the citizens of on the citizens of this country and who makes that decision. And then he also talks about how he's been working with Secretary Tommy Thompson of Health and Human Services for several months now, he says, who has made it a high priority, talking about the things learned in dark winter. Now that's fascinating because Tommy Thompson was put in charge of the anthrax attacks at first. The FBI was not given permission. Uh, to be in charge of the investigation. For some reason, Tommy Thompson was given authority. So it seems like Jerome Hauer was the one just sort of puppeteering Tommy Thompson, even as early as July 2001. And this statement alone could explain why the Bush administration was able to do this and not bat any eyelashes. Someone asked Jerome Hauer, how should this be dealt with, like in a truncated way? Which federal agencies need to be in charge of this? And Hauer says, very simply, FEMA needs to be the overarching agency that does the coordination of this at the federal level and then rely on agencies like Health and Human Services for the expertise to deal with the unique parts of the bioterrorists. And Mr. Shays, another congressman who was involved in this exercise, says, just another observation. I felt like I've been in the middle of a movie, and maybe that's why I was anxious. I wanted to know how it turned out, so I asked my staff how we did finally get a handle on it, you know, 12 million vaccines out. And the response was, we did not get a handle on it. They stopped the exercise before resolution. Kind of scary, huh? Now, again, this is Dr. Jerome Hauer laying out exactly what happens after 9-11. He says, I think it's very important that we have a central focus at the federal level that can have this overarching approach that looks at chemical, biological, nuclear. The use of dirty bombs is a very big concern at the local level, not nuclear bombs, but dirty bombs. Less than two months later, in only 50 days after this hearing, on the morning of September 11th, a plane hits the World Trade Center. Then a second plane hits the other World Trade Center tower. Then at 9.45 a.m., Eastern Standard Time, a plane hits the Pentagon. Then just a little after that, another plane crashes in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Both towers collapse, mostly into their own footprint, 
And at first, people thought over 10,000 people had perished in the attacks. Most newspapers and news reports of the attacks in the first week following September 11, 2001, reported the death toll somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 10,000 casualties. In reality, the death toll was somewhere around 3,000. On September 12, 2001, New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and Office of Emergency Management Director Jerome Hauer, who was also the managing director of Kroll Associates and also served as an executive at SAIC, the defense company. These two men were planning to run a bioterrorism drill on September 12th, the morning of September 12th, actually. In fact, the same agency that Howard said should be in charge of these kind of federal responses, FEMA, had brought a lot of equipment to New York City, to Manhattan, the day before September 11th, in preparation for the September 12th, 2001, Tripod 2 bioterrorism drill that simulated an anthrax attack. Now, when do we have the very first mention of smallpox after 9-11? Because obviously, as I've been telling you, we have a lot of talk about smallpox leading up to 9-11, a lot, culminating with Operation Dark Winter. But what about after 9-11? Well, I've already shown you clips. I dug up a clip of Don and Fred Kagan talking about what if the terrorists had anthrax on that plane on September 12th on a radio appearance. I've already shown you a clip of Richard Pearl, Project for the New American Century Neocon, saying what if the next attack is biological. Somewhere around September 19th, he said that on a TV news appearance. But I haven't shown you anything about when the first TV news or newspaper mention of smallpox is after 9-11. When was that? Well, from what I was able to find, it appears that the very first mention of smallpox was on the NBC Evening News, Tuesday, September 25th, by Tom Brokaw. I don't have access to this clip yet because my trusty resource, the Vanderbilt Archives, is closed during the holiday season, and I highly recommend, if you're looking for obscure old news clips, to go to the television Vanderbilt News Archive. It's amazing. But this is their earliest news clip that they have that mentions smallpox bioterrorism after 9-11. In the Tom Brokaw segment, talks about the threat of bioterrorism and chemical warfare. They quote a guy named Dr. Michael Osterholm, who says terrorists will attack the United States in any way necessary. They quote the New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Peggy Hamburg, who says people cannot be complacent against bioterrorism. They quote a guy from the Monterey Institute of International Studies, Dr. Jonathan Tucker, who says there is not enough smallpox vaccine to do any good, even in a moderate outbreak, referring to a potential terrorist outbreak, intentional release of smallpox. So it looks like Tom Brokaw, ironically, was the first person to do a report on, you know, some fear-mongering about this potential of smallpox terrorism. Now, September 25th, would have been either the day or the day after his intern received the real anthrax letter. Or actually, I'm sorry, the St. Petersburg hoax letter, the one that she thought was threatening enough to report to the FBI. 
So just incidentally, around the exact same time, Tom Brokaw's office received a hoax anthrax letter. But it turns out that she got infected with real anthrax from a real anthrax letter that was sent there shortly before, two days before, in fact. Now, this is really strange. Even before the first reported anthrax death, likely before anyone had even heard of Robert Stevens' anthrax infection at the federal level, on October 3rd, there's a Senate panel, a Senate hearing, where people question Tommy Thompson, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and Dr. Anthony Fauci. And what they mainly talk about is smallpox. Two days before the first reported anthrax murder, Tommy Thompson is already talking about basically delivering 40 million doses of new, brand new manufactured smallpox vaccine to prevent a bioterrorist smallpox attack by the end of next summer. And allegedly, this was already a plan that was in place where they had already put this in motion before 9-11 and that the vaccine was going to be delivered sometime around 2003, but now it was going to be fast-tracked and it was going to be available by early 2002. Now, in this article from the New York Times talking about this hearing, it says that Mr. Thompson said that $60 million would be used to speed smallpox vaccine production. Other senators like Bill Frist suggested appropriating $1.6 billion to improve the nation's preparedness for bioterrorism. Senator Bill Frist says, we are highly vulnerable. We are vulnerable not because we are unprepared today, but we are underprepared. Now, apparently in this hearing, they also made the distinction between when they would have to use stockpiles of old smallpox vaccine from the 70s versus new manufactured vaccines. And apparently they already had some plans to give out the stockpile, the old vaccines to people that were manufactured in the 1970s in the event of a smallpox terrorist attack versus immunizing the public to prevent infection from a future attack. And in that event, they were planning on using, or at least talking about at this time, using new manufactured vaccines from a company called Acambus PLC, which I believe is a British company. So who the fuck knows if this company had some kind of relationship to other people in the Bush administration? Apparently, Dick Cheney was one of the people who was most vocal about wanting to roll out this plan. Now, on the same day, October 3rd, the morning of, Judith Miller's new book, Germs, gets released. And if you listen to previous Anthrax episodes by Media Roots, you know how strange this book is, Germs, where it sort of foreshadows an anthrax attack done by a quote-unquote rogue nation like Iraq. And of course, two days later, on October 5th, 2001, we have the first anthrax murder. Robert Stevens photo editor, art editor for The Sun tabloid in Boca Raton, Florida, dies from inhalation anthrax. Technically the first murder via anthrax, the first bioterrorism murder in the United States, in the history of the United States. Oh, I also forgot to mention that on October 1st, 2001, four days before Robert Stevens dies from anthrax, there was another bioterrorism fear-mongering segment on the news, this time on ABC Evening News, reported on by Peter Jennings. There's a segment in the episode where it shows 
the drugs that are available to treat smallpox. And it also has Secretary Tommy Thompson saying that we are prepared for any biological attack. And then Andrew Card saying that terrorists likely have the means for chemical and biological warfare. So again, this is the second news broadcast that I know of happened before the anthrax attacks talking about smallpox bioterrorism on October 1st, 2001 on ABC Evening News. During my research in this podcast, a character has popped up a few times that I've never heard of before. Similar to the Center for Strategic and International Studies think taker, Brad Roberts, who wrote the CSIS paper, Biological Weapons, Weapons of the Future in 1993, is this other character named Michael Moody. Well, who is Michael Moody? Well, I don't think I've mentioned him yet in the podcast, but he's come up several times during my research for this. And he's someone that, you know, at first seems like he's got a name or a position in an organization, which seems like if you just look at it at a glance, you're like, oh, this doesn't sound bad. He's the president of the Chemical and Biological Arms Control Institute. You know, it sounds like something that's there to help keep the world safe, right? They're, they're trying to control the spread of them. Um, well, it turns out this guy, Michael Moody, later worked as a consulting employee, it says on his LinkedIn page, for five years for the defense contractor SAIC. You know, some more backstory on Mr. Moody. He also worked for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, says on his own resume or, I guess, bio page, that he was a senior advisor to the president. At CSIS, his substantive work focused on European security issues, conflict in the developing world. He also served as the director for the CSIS Working Group on the Future of U.S. National Strategy, co-chaired by then-Senator Sam Nunn and Representative Dick Cheney. From 1983 to 1987, Mr. Moody held the positions of Special Assistant to the Ambassador and Assistant for Special Projects at the U.S. Mission to NATO. He also oversaw the production of the Alliance Papers, a mission initiative to provide analysis of key issues on the NATO agenda. Mr. Moody was nominated by President George H.W. Bush and confirmed by the Senate as Assistant Director for Multilateral Affairs of the U.S. Armed Control and Disarmament Agency. So this guy's been in and out of think tanks, defense companies, you know, attached to the hip with Dick Cheney and George W. Bush, or I should say George H.W. Bush Sr. Now, for some reason, C-SPAN gives him an entire hour slot to answer viewers' questions Mr. Moody talked about the potential use of anthrax and smallpox by terrorist organizations, as well as the potential impact on health safety. He also responded to viewer comments and questions. Here's a clip from Michael Moody's appearance on C-SPAN. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. We want to spend the first half hour dealing with the issue of anthrax and the second half hour dealing with smallpox. And I'd also like to know... Uh, if we should start uh, inoculating people for smallpox again, which we discontinued, I guess, back in the 70s. Thank you. Well, smallpox is an, another agent that is often identified as a potential biological weapon. There has been an effort underway by the federal government since the Om Shinrikyo attack 
in uh, 1995 to enhance our capabilities. And it requires improvements across the board in law enforcement and intelligence. And as we were discussing before, improving our uh, public health service is one of the major ways to enhance our ability to deal with biological terrorism. We have to improve our disease surveillance, reporting, detection, epidemiology, kind of the front end of the healthcare system. Let's use this as an opportunity to move to the second area that we want to focus on, focus on which is smallpox. This morning, the Washington Times has uh, three members of the Senate who did testify yesterday, and they told the Senate panel that American citizens should be vaccinated against anthrax and smallpox. There's also a story from yesterday's New York Times that says a Pentagon advisory panel estimated that the cost of developing just eight new vaccinations for anthrax, smallpox, and other potential threats of bioterrorism could cost $3.2 billion. I, th I think the issue of vaccination is uh, one of the central policy issues that our leadership is going to have to confront on this issue. Uh, and, and there are different issues with respect to deciding whether or not to vaccinate. We have decided, for example, to vaccinate all of our military personnel against anthrax. But we have been witnessing an unwillingness on the part of some uh, enlisted personnel to accept that, uh, that vaccine uh, and risk ending their careers as a, as a consequence of it because they feel there are health dangers associated with it. And doing vaccinations are not risk-free, especially if it is a universal uh, policy that everyone should be vaccinated. Um, vaccines are the introduction of the disease itself in a, in a way. And so there are some at-risk populations about which you have to be very concerned if you are going to conduct a massive vaccine program. Uh, the, the problem with smallpox is that um, the World Health Organization has officially declared smallpox eradicated. And at least officially, there are only two formal smallpox stockpiles one in the United States at the Centers for Disease Control and one at a laboratory in Siberia in Russia. Those are the only two authorized stockpiles. There is concern that there are other uh, actors out there, whether primarily governments, who may have access to smallpox. I think one of the big questions is where do they get anthrax? So you suggest that it may have come from the stockpile, the, the lost stockpiles of the Soviet Union. It is the case that for 20 years the Soviet Union had a huge biological weapons program in complete violation of its obligations as a party to the treaty that bans biological weapons. But it was an enormous program and it included significant work on smallpox. A defector from that program who has written about this indicated that they at one point may have produced as much as 20 tons of, of smallpox, uh, which was subsequently destroyed. Did they get all of it? No one can be absolutely certain. Uh, so that is a, a possibility and that it is a sufficiently high possibility that means that these kinds of situations 
have to be taken seriously. Uh, it's not a zero probability that they could never happen. Uh, the fact that they might be able to happen, because you can put together uh, plausible scenarios about where they get it and about how they use it, that we have to take this as a very serious problem. Last call, Philadelphia, good morning. Isn't Iraq one of the countries that is suspected maybe of having uh, small talks uh, um, in their, I don't know, <laughs> wherever In their population? Yes. <laughs> Thanks, we'll get a response. Well, Iraq certainly had both a chemical and biological weapons program, and uh, UN inspectors have uh, certified that among the Iraqi agents on which people on which they were working included botulinum toxin anthrax aflatoxin which is a, a long-term carcinogenic uh, wheat smut that might be used to attack our plant population and they were also working on monkeypox and there is a debate within the community as to why Iraq would be working on monkeypox. Uh, some people say that it was just because one of the people in the program was an expert on that and he wanted to work on that. Other people would suggest that because it is in the same family as smallpox, they may have been working on monkeypox as a surrogate for smallpox. It was the case that one of the last major outbreaks of smallpox before the WHO was able to eradicate the disease did occur in Iraq. On October 12, 2001, John Ashcroft takes part in a press conference about the ongoing anthrax attacks. At this point, they finally decide to call them terrorism. They actually waited about a week, actually around this time, they waited until around the 12th to start calling Robert Stevens' death terrorism. Now, none of the core Bush officials have mentioned smallpox terrorism yet except for Tommy Thompson. Now, for some reason, it's around the 17th and the 18th of October when a lot of talk starts circulating in the media about smallpox and the potential of a smallpox bioterrorism attack. At this point, it didn't seem like it was enough to fearmonger the public about continuing anthrax deaths or anthrax attacks or infections. The media now seemed to be really interested in talking about what could come next after anthrax, and the next thing they would present was this idea of smallpox. In the Tucson Times in Arizona, in an article from October 18, 2001, epidemic control can require a basic curtailing of our freedoms. Epidemic control can require strict action. Through scientific and logistical questions surrounding bioterrorism abound, the associated moral dilemmas may be the more difficult ones to resolve. Dr. Peter Kelly cited an epidemic of smallpox in Boston from 1901 to 1903 as an example. The highly contagious virus was contained only after public health officials, overruling concerns about civil liberties, instituted mandatory vaccination and quarantines. Mandatory vaccination meant doctors went out into the community, knocked on doors, and were accompanied by police, Kelly said. If you agreed to a vaccine, things went smoothly. If you didn't, things could get nasty. Most of those who refused immunization were fined $5 or spent 15 days in jail. But virus squads also converged on cheap rooming houses where they forcibly vaccinated tramps. <laughs> well, I'm surprised they even see that word in an article from 2001. And again, we return to this paradigm of somehow 
smallpox being produced by the Soviet Union getting into the hands of terrorists that are going to use it against the U.S. The article continues and says that terrorism experts say it is plausible terrorists could obtain smallpox from the organized crime network that has emerged since the collapse of the former Soviet Union. There also is circumstantial evidence of undeclared smallpox stocks in Iraq and North Korea. What I was trying to do is make the audience think how we, in the 21st century, would respond to a smallpox outbreak, Kelly said after the presentation. Now, I guess what's not surprising, but also somewhat surprising, is just how sort of scripted this all seems. How much of this just seems like it's coming out from public government agencies. Like, here's a package on smallpox, just run all this. Because I'm not exaggerating. From the 17th to the 18th, there are quite a few uh, news broadcasts about this. And I'll just read off a few. Eye on America, Bioterrorism, CBS Evening News, October 17th, 2001. Dan Rather, talking about smallpox. A segment about the anthrax investigation from NBC Evening News, October 17th, with Tom Brokaw. This is after he got infected with anthrax. Or, sorry, his intern got infected with anthrax. He did not test positive for anthrax. This segment also mentions the potential of a bioterrorist attack using smallpox. ABC Evening News, the next night, October 18th, a closer look at smallpox, hosted by Peter Jennings. A CBS Evening News segment from the same night, October 18th, about the anthrax investigation, also has a large segment in it about how smallpox could be the next form of bioterrorist attack. CNN runs another segment on the same evening, hosted by Wolf Blitzer, essentially echoing the same thoughts, talking a lot about the anthrax investigation, fear-mongering about future anthrax attacks, and then also mentioning how smallpox could be next. Now, the idea of curtailing civil liberties to deal with a smallpox outbreak is not really discussed in these TV news segments like it was in this newspaper article I read, but this subject of the Soviet Union somehow giving its smallpox stockpiles to terrorist groups that will use it against the United States is heavily referenced and is used in most of these news segments. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci gets in the mix, and this is when it becomes obvious that these are just sort of, you know, U.S. government talking points or packages being given over to news agencies. He's given a relatively softball interview on CNN Evening News on October 23rd, the same day where he testifies at a Senate hearing about recent cases of anthrax and threats to the public. Among the issues they addressed were heightened security measures in post offices around the country, the ability of public health services to respond to bioterrorism using vaccines, vaccine research and development plans related to biological weapons. Now, it's surprising and also not surprising for me that most of the hearings that were happening surrounding bioterrorism around this time, including the hearings hosted by Tommy Thompson or Anthony Fauci, were largely about smallpox. That was the big enchilada. That was seen as like what would come after anthrax that would be contagious and that could kill millions. 
So Dr. Anthony Fauci actually spends a great deal of time in this hearing and some time in this CNN interview on the same day talking about smallpox and vaccine development. Now, this is a rather interesting hearing, and I'm going to play you multiple clips from it because it seems to spur a discussion between at least several people sort of subtweeting each other, if you will, sub-commenting on each other. Specifically, Dennis Kucinich seems to take issue with Bernie Sanders getting a little too eager about hyping up anthrax bioterrorism and smallpox bioterrorism. Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, is in this hearing questioning Anthony Fauci and kind of eating up everything he says and even trying to push him more on certain issues. Now, when it gets around to Dennis Kucinich, where it's his time to comment, it seems like he's trying to pull things back a little bit and maybe kind of publicly, you know, without directly responding to Bernie Sanders, kind of, you know, passive-aggressively um, bitch-slapping, if you will, Bernie Sanders a little bit. So take a listen to this interesting exchange where seems like Dennis Kucinich might have been one of the only people, I mean, possibly the only person that I know of in the government at this time who was actually like, hey, wait a second, guys, this bioterrorism shit's like really fear-mongery, over-the-top shit you're pushing here. Let's fucking dial this down and be realistic here. Effect of genetically engineered organisms only compounds our peril. Still many people are justifiably concerned, we seem medically unprepared to deter or defend against attacks using agents, anthrax and smallpox, long considered likely terrorists or biological warfare, warfare weapons. Almost two years ago, this subcommittee found the Department of Defense, DOD, anthrax vaccine immunization program overtly dependent on the sole source manufacture of a dated, logistically cumbersome medical technology to test against. It is not ethical to expose otherwise healthy people to legal, uh, lethal pathogens. In the event of an outbreak occurs before a biological defense is fully approved, how will those receiving the inoculation be informed they are using an investigational product? If the official risk-benefit calculation degenerates into little more than anything is better than nothing, how will the public be protected from the flood of useless potions and magical anti-terrorism electors to appear on the Internet? Improving surveillance techniques, improving the dissemination of information to be on the lookout for things like anthrax and smallpox and Botox and bubonic plague. And those are areas where hopefully together we can continue to take this hearing working hand in hand with the administration, with both sides of the aisle, with both chambers to move forward for the American people. With that, I, I yield back the balance of my time. I thank the, thank the gentleman, I'd call on Mr. Sanders, who has been with this committee at almost every hearing, and I thank the gentleman. And I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the leadership that you have shown in this whole area, and we welcome the secretary to be with us today. Uh, as the chairman indicated when he began, we are meeting in an unusual facility for us at an unusual time and dealing with a subject that I think many of us would have hoped never to have to deal with. But I think as Americans and as the United States government, is it, a, it is imperative for us now to take the hardest look that we can at the most nightmarish uh, situations that we can imagine. I think that's what the American people want. 
and they want us to come up with the best solutions that we can come up with. This is not pleasant. Uh, we're not happy about it, but that's something that we have to do. Uh, let me tell you just very briefly uh, some of uh, the areas that uh, I am uh, concerned about. Number one, uh, that in fact we have to lay out what the plans may be of fiendish minds who want to destroy Americans. And it's not a pleasant intellectual scenario to get into, but we have to do that. And then we have to determine from a counterterrorism point of view how can we prevent the implementation of those plans. Uh, there is in the report uh, information that we have received from the committee uh, indications that a 1993 report by the U.S. Congressional Office of Technology Assessment estimated that between 130,000 and 3 million deaths could follow the uh, aerosolized release of 220 pounds of anthrax spores upwind of the Washington, D.C. area. In other words, it is conceivable that somebody flying in a uh, two-seat passenger plane uh, can do horrendous damage to this country. How do we stop that? Very difficult, uh, but questions that we have got to ask. Um, in the event that a tragedy occurs, how do we make certain that our people are immunized? Um, if people become sick, what procedures are in place to treat them? But what is appropriate today, if we are dealing with Cipro, and if we are dealing with vaccines, it is incumbent upon our government to tell the pharmaceutical industry that they can forget about their profits, that we need that product, as much of that product as we need, as quickly as possible, and we need it at a cost that is affordable for individuals and for the United States government. And we will work with you. Uh, you. And let's see if we can go forward to make sure that the American people have the protection to which they are entitled. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. At this time, and then we'll get to you, Mr. Secretary. I recognize the ranking member of the committee, Mr. Kucinich. And I Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for calling this hearing, and um, I appreciate the work that you have done over the many years in calling this country's attention to the challenges that could be presented by uh, biological warfare. Uh, well, last week, Congress left the Capitol under the uh, threat of a biological attack, anthrax. And I think that the American people at this time are looking for stability from their government. They're looking for certainty from their government, and we're going to have to do the best we can to provide that. We have to keep in mind that despite the fact that we have had buildings that have been contaminated, that this is a government of the people, not a government of buildings. And we can decontaminate buildings, we can make sure that buildings are secure, but we can never lose that commitment to government of the people and be cowered by terrorists or panicked or turn against each other in moments of uncertainty. The underlying and fundamental unity which created this country is a good place for us to always begin from. Whether we're Democrats or Republicans, whether we're Congress or the administration, we have to appeal to that fundamental unity, the thing that holds us together as a nation, so that there will be no challenge that will be so grave that it cannot be met without splintering this government or this country. 
I have confidence that this administration and this Congress will work together to meet the challenge of dealing with biological, chemical, or any other kind of terrorism. But we must be resolute in our intention to see that those principles of government of the people are not shaken to their foundation in moments of uncertainty and even panic. We're a stronger country than that. And so with that in mind and in that spirit, I look forward to hearing from the witnesses and look forward to this opportunity to see what we may be able to do to better secure our nation. Thank you very much. Two days after this hearing, CNN continues to lead the charge on pushing smallpox bioterrorism content on their network. Wolf Blitzer specifically, who's leading the charge on this, interviews former Senator Sam Nunn about smallpox bioterrorism. Senator Nunn recounts the bioterrorism exercise held earlier this year, talking about Operation Dark Winter, that featured a simulated smallpox attack says we will be much better prepared since the September 11th attack and the anthrax threat. Tommy Thompson on October 26th, the day after the CNN appearance, tells the press that the expected production of smallpox vaccine is to begin by late November or early December 2001. And he reiterates that the government has selected one company with a no-bid contract, a UK pharmaceutical company, a small biotechnology company, they call it, a canvas, to make 54 million doses. And it also sort of makes sure to say that this contract was actually signed way before 9-11. It says the contract was signed last year, which at the time was considered only a theoretical threat. So what's really funny about this line from Melody Peterson of the New York Times is she's acting like it's no longer a theoretical threat. That somehow smallpox, as a means of a terrorist attack, is no longer theoretical because of 9-11. I mean, just imagine how fucking ridiculous that statement is. Of course it's theoretical, you fucking idiot. You fear-mongered, Stockholm Syndrome-suffering, Bush-era casualty. I mean, you know, that's giving her some leeway there. Maybe she's a, you know, intelligence asset of some kind. I have no fucking idea who she is, but... It's just amazing to think that after 9-11, smallpox as a terrorist method was no longer theoretical. But before 9-11, it was only theoretical. Well, as I read to you earlier, some of those statements made by some of those senators who participated in Operation Dark Winter before 9-11 were saying that this was inevitable and very likely to happen. So to some of these people, it wasn't just theoretical even before 9-11. It was like inevitable, which is insane. Now, one thing that I think makes this whole smallpox fear-mongering, you know, do we need to inoculate the public to prevent a bioterrorist attack discussion interesting is that there was pushback against the policy, you know, discussion about it very early on after 9-11. It was actually you know, you didn't even really see articles pushing back against the Patriot Act in newspapers like the LA Times this early after 9-11. But you did see articles pushing back against this 
idea of vaccinating the public for a smallpox attack. As early as October 29, 2001, an article for the LA Times called Vaccinations Problematic by Thomas H. Ma II. It starts, As anthrax exposures continue and the specter of smallpox has loomed on the horizon. So that just sort of gives you an example of what was in the error in the news at this time. The specter of smallpox is looming on the horizon. He's sort of commenting on the zeitgeist at the time. Many officials have begun discussing widespread vaccination against the two diseases in an effort to reduce public concern about terrorist threats. But the vaccines now in use present a number of problems, ranging from lack of manufacturing, capacity to side effects that render large-scale vaccination programs problematic. Well, why are they problematic? Well, first of all, the article goes into talking about how the anthrax vaccine is like basically experimental. The article just straight up says that anthrax vaccination of soldiers has produced reports of severe side effects such as bleeding and thyroid malfunction and has been linked to six deaths. The vaccine is produced by only one manufacturer, Bioport Corporation of Lansing, Michigan, and the technology is nearly 40 years old. But the antigen does not stimulate a strong immune response. To get good immunity, six doses of the vaccine must be given at two-week intervals. Now, this is really disturbing. It says the Army has been working with the National Institute of Health to use genetic engineering techniques to produce a pure antigen. Although both the military and the NIH have consistently refused to talk about their work, other experts say that human tests will begin early next year. Now, this is interesting, too. It says that the smallpox vaccine that we have currently, because this is before that company, I guess, produced new versions, says the existing stocks of smallpox vaccine were grown in calf cells collected and freeze-dried more than 30 years ago. Then it goes into all the stuff I told you in the last episode about how they use vaccinia, which produces cowpox to make the vaccine but that even though the vaccines can still be effective 30 years old, they are contaminated with proteins and other materials from the cow cells that may produce adverse reactions in some individuals. The FDA no longer allows vaccines to be grown in animal cells. So these vaccines were technically against FDA rules, like you would not be allowed to make them anymore. Vaccinia, this is the live virus cells that are used in the vaccine, can itself produce problems ranging from open sores all over the body to death. The death rate is estimated to be as high as two in a million cases, meaning that if the entire U.S. population were vaccinated, about 600 people would die of the vaccine. Inadvertent contamination of the eye, caused perhaps by touching the vaccination site and then the eye, can produce blindness. Vaccinia itself is infectious. That's a valuable trait in a vaccination program because it provides protection to people who weren't directly vaccinated. But in a modern society with large numbers of people whose immune systems have been damaged by HIV infections or as a result of drugs taken for organ transplants, that contagion could be a major problem that likely would lead to additional deaths. Vaccinating all Americans against smallpox could cause 3,000 severe adverse reactions and a much larger number of lesser long-term problems. If a terrorist group actually launched a smallpox attack, however, we don't have any choice as a society other than to use the vaccinia vaccine, says Galloway. I don't know who they're quoting here. 
So yeah, it's interesting that already, you know, this soon after the fear-mongering about this next potential type of attack, a smallpox attack starts, there's already all this pushback about it. And it's pretty, I think, strong pushback, you know, coming from this LA Times article. Now, remember, I mentioned that Judith Miller's book, Germs, came out, you know, in the middle of all this, specifically October 3rd. Well, she actually wrote the book Germs with two other guys, William Broad of the New York Times and Steve Engelberg of the New York Times. Now, I think this sort of panel talk that they do, and I should say that it's at the Council on Foreign Relations, is where they do this panel talk, hosted by the formerly Me Too'd PBS talk show host, Charlie Rose, who actually shows up very late for the panel. It's kind of comical series of events that occurs in this panel. But some of their responses to what they think about the anthrax attack is interesting. Um, And it's not really what I expected. And there's also talk about smallpox, of course. A lot of people want to bring up this possibility of what are we going to do about smallpox? How likely is you know, smallpox going to be the next attack. Smallpox comes up in this discussion 15 times. All right. Hello. Uh, I'm Steve Engelberg. This is Bill Broad, Judy Miller. Uh, Judy would be doing it, except for the fact that she has laryngitis. So we want to save her voice for actually important, uh, wise words. Um, about two and a half years ago, uh, we set out to write a book about a, a very, very arcane subject. And I must say it was uh, Judy, I think, had the original notion that this could be a book. Um, I thought it was a ridiculous idea. <laughs> Bill was more enthusiastic, thank goodness. Um, and uh, we went forward. And I always like to tell people that the fact we're here uh, today having this conversation <laughs> under these circumstances is proof as you analyze uh, the recent events that flukes really do happen, uh, you know. Because, you know, people say, how could it be that Atta was a mile away and the, the anthrax was found here and it's September 12th, how could it be other than the hijackers? And I said, well, you know, we started a project two and a half years ago. We didn't know that the September 11th was going to happen. So it's possible perhaps that uh, this is linked to uh, exactly what it, it might be, or it's also possible that somebody else started their own project several years ago. Anyway, I think uh, the format here today, would I gather we would take questions. That the anthrax that has been used so far contain properties, particularly electro, anti-electrostatic properties, uh, uh, virtually identical or identical to what we saw from the Iraqi swabs. And that this, was, this kind of capability was peculiar to Iraq. Uh, what about the validity of that I, report? I, I don't think we know that to be true. We know that it has um, static-free properties, but there's dozens and dozens of different ways to achieve that. And we haven't found this uh, identifying signature, uh, bentonite, which was the chemical that the Iraqis developed uh, for their program but never applied to making dry anthrax. So yes, we've got... We've been in New York today, but in Washington, I understand there were some briefings to uh, reporters and some statements by... Uh, army pathology people that ruled out uh, bentonite, ruled out uh, things you would have, uh, elements you would have right. found had it been bentonite. Well, right, so there wasn't, there, not only was there not the, uh, the uh, static-free signature, but also the strain, AIMS, is one that Iraq tried very, very hard to get its hands on. And now, having said all of that, uh, <laughs> lest anybody think that we're government dupes, I mean, obviously, if you look at the if you look at the uh, politics of this, 
uh, and we've all been around long enough to watch the effect of politics on intelligence analysis, it would be extremely inconvenient at this instant for this to be Iraq. This would be astoundingly <laughs> inconvenient. And so for that reason, we should look at all these claims with a little bit of skepticism, even a lot of skepticism. But by the same token, we can't fall off the boat on the other side and say, you know, well, and therefore, uh, it's Iraq. I mean, a lot of these Iraq things are, are intriguing. I mean, we could take the Mohammed Atta meeting. Uh, in Prague. In Prague. Now, Mohammed Atta meets an Iraqi intelligence officer in Prague, uh, you know, when the pl plot is in train. Now, you know, the government's view of that is uh, it's unconnected. And I guess the question I keep sort of posing is, okay, what is the benign explanation <laughs> Tell me, please. You can come up with one. I'll be, right. It'd be great. But we haven't heard it yet, and so I think one has to be skeptical, sure, but one also has to follow the evidence. Uh, because if it is proven that it's Iraq, obviously the consequences are going to be very, very serious. For one thing, we'll finally have something we can bomb. No, I'm sorry. Um, I'm Charlie Rose, and I apologize for being late. Um, obviously, you were going pretty well here, so... Uh, <laughs> We, we, or we, would, we ran into a taping problem at my studio. For instance, if you had a smallpox that was engineered to be even more lethal and uh, to outwit the vaccine, there's a built-in deterrent. You know, who would unleash such a thing on the world? Because it's going to, you know, ignite a global epidemic that would, you know, though possibly think, kill billions. Though I think one of the worrisome things about the Russian program was that is that that was the, precisely the kind of agent that they worked on. Yeah. They, they weaponized smallpox. The United States did not. They weaponized Marburg. The United States did not. I mean, this was the agents that they wanted to work with. And we never, uh, those of us who studied it after the fact and those who were in the American program trying to understand the psychology of their Russian counterparts, never understood why they went that way. Still don't. And still don't to this day. What do you do? Okay. Well, we do know that uh, the Russians fought the Soviet Union, and then the Russians fought long and hard uh, to preserve the virus, not to destroy the virus once smallpox was eradicated as a disease. Now, for those of us who first came to look at this issue, we said, gosh, if there's no smallpox around, why not destroy the virus? Because there are only two remaining declared repositories, one in Siberia in a place that I visited in a, a, a lab called Vector. I mean, James Bond could not do better than that, right? <laughs> and one in Atlanta at the CDC. But it is also known, uh, according to U.S. intelligence, that there are at least a dozen other countries that kept their virus and didn't turn it over to the World Health Organization to be destroyed. And it is those countries that we worry about. Now, the Clinton administration, the first time around that this deb debate came around, America kind of was leaning towards destruction. But the Russians felt so strongly that we did not make a thing of it. The second time, and by now, Bill Clinton had really gotten religion on bioterrorism. We worked with the Russians to make sure that the vote at the UN went in favor of preserving the virus, retaining the virus at least until uh, early 2000 so that we could continue work on it. In our book, I think uh, at least some of us <laughs> believe that this was a very wise decision. It is not a popular decision with, within the CDC to this day, but I think uh, given what's happened to us, 
uh, and what might happen. Um, you know, it was a wise one. There's, there's also, uh, they're working with it, and they're doing experiments every day. They, people down at CDC working with the uh, Army researchers, a guy, I believe, at, at Duke, um, and they have glimmerings of s serious antiviral medicines, you know, that, that people who, the, the smallpox vaccine is not that great. As you know, any live virus vaccine can produce reactions. One in 13,000 people have an adverse reaction to the smallpox vaccine. One in a million die. So if everybody in Manhattan was va vaccina uh, vac vaccinated, you'd, you know, have seven or eight deaths. So, uh, you know, it's a smart thing to try to develop alternatives. Hopefully, we'll never have need for them, but they're on the horizon now, and it's because they kept the virus and they're testing. Oh, I'm sorry. Christina Stewart, uh, Society Editor at Vanity Fair. Um, you've made reference to a stronger, more lethal version of smallpox possibly being developed. Do you anticipate that the new batch of smallpox vaccines that are being asked for by the government will be addressing that new form of, an, uh, of smallpox? And more importantly, I have not read much about VIG being um, similarly stockpiled. And as you've referenced, the numbers of people adversely affected by smallpox would, in large quantities, require VIG. Do you anticipate that's also being stockpiled? The, to my knowledge, the, uh, the vaccine that is being developed would not uh, take the uh, bioengineered threat into account. I mean, it's just the standard, uh, what they call the vaccinia, uh, live virus vaccine that they're that they're trying to develop, um, and it, and I think it's probably premature to go ahead and try to deal with it. I don't think they've done the uh, the experiments that would allow you to assess whether uh, a smallpox superbug could actually be a threat. Um, notably, and we, we mentioned this in chapter 12 of the book, the Defense Department is just starting to walk down the road of seeing whether a uh, super anthrax that the, the Russians developed through bioengineering, uh, whether or not that's a threat to our current uh, uh, anthrax vaccine. It takes a lot of testing and a lot of experimentation uh, to, to do that kind of threat assessment. And, but I think the, the, the driving concern is that the consequences would be so enormous if you got a, uh, a, a smallpox epidemic going that you, you, they'd be fools not to look at this more carefully and try to get in a better position vis-a-vis -vis the vaccine. Uh, you know, you, it, it, it's like a slow wildfire. It just goes from person to person to person. Anthrax just stays right there. And smallpox is contagious. And that seems to be the central people. point. Is yeah. there anything that's more contagious and more threatening than smallpox? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And what would that be? <laughs> you know, I, I don't... Uh, I don't think we need to give anybody any ideas, but, but, but the fact of the matter is this. Is it in the book? <laughs> I don't think we go into the numbers, but I mean, there are other bugs, obviously, that we've all heard of, Marburg, Ebola, so on and so forth, that would be theoretically much nastier. Smallpox, you know, you have a 7 in 10 chance of surviving, which is, in the germ weapons line of work, actually not bad. Mm. You know, the, they're worse. If, if you do what? If you're, if you're infected with it. No, yeah. but if, in other words, you have a chance of surviving if, if you, you go get, get vaccinated. vaccinated with new vaccines. If you're vaccinated before and even afterwards, they yeah. say there's some mitigating effect. But I think this goes to the issue, do we know, does the government know information, or have, have they gotten information that suggests there's a smallpox epidemic coming our way? I have not heard that. And no. We have no specific information. We've asked this question again and again. Do you have information? You want to address IG? No. No. Yeah. Uh, everything that is would be needed 
to do mass vaccination is now being ordered by the government and it is being stockpiled. It will take some time before those stockpiles are built up. Uh, I would think an added problem with respect to the smallpox vaccine is something that didn't exist, at least we weren't aware of it, in the 60s when we were still vaccinating against smallpox was HIV population. People who are HIV and the families of peop people who are HIV positive cannot safely take this vaccine. That lets out a lot of Americans. So these will be very difficult choices and, and I do not foresee a, a as Bill uh, doesn't either, a, a mass vaccine vaccination program absent an event um, because smallpox is still an eradicated disease and it, long it's, 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 it's also sure why it starts, it's, it's not dumb to stockpile this stuff. You can use it to ship overseas if there's an outbreak overseas, so you can help fight that fire so it doesn't spread over here. You can send it to the place where it's breaking out. And even people who've been infected, you know, get, if you're smart. At the headquarters of the National Institute of Health, Anthony Fauci does a very fear-mongery speech about bioterrorism. And he predominantly talks about anthrax and smallpox as terrorist weapons and what we can do to prevent and mitigate a potential scenario like this. So take a listen to some of his statements in regards to smallpox and anthrax. But we only have enough time to discuss smallpox and anthrax. And again, this is unfortunately a subject that really does not need any introduction since it's dominated the media as shown here on just a couple of the major publications that have thrust upon us this most extraordinary event that we are dealing with, point of which we are totally uncertain. Let's take anthrax, the critical issues with anthrax, the bacteria itself, as you've heard many times on the media, does not transmit from one person to another. The spores, which are long-lived, resistant to drying heat and ultraviolet light, etc., they do transmit, and they don't transmit from person to person. We'll get to the different types of anthrax and the confusion that we've unfortunately had over the last few weeks about that. Smallpox, finally, a disease in which we find ourselves now as the victim of our own successes in the public health community. It's the most severe form caused by variola major or orthopox virus. It, supposedly, the legal stocks were vials that were contained, one at the CDC and one at Russia. We know now from intelligence that it is highly likely, based on defecting Russian scientists, that Russia was making large amounts of smallpox they said they destroyed it. The question is, did it get into the hands of others, either domestic people or people who are in other states? We don't know the answer to that. Is that they start to become infected about one day before you get the characteristic maculopapular rash, and then you get intensively infected up through and including the time when the scabs on the deforming pustules drop off. So here's what you see, the clinical course of a rash, and then the scabbing, and as you can see, infectivity is in the positive with the plus signs, and the lack of infectivity is in the other. So there will be two things about this that are important. One, there will be a period of time when an individual doesn't look classically like a smallpox 
victim, which I'll show you in a second, but could have a macular papular rash and be uh, having a significant amount of malaise, fever, and aching, and at that point in time can be infective. So to rely on saying that person has the approach towards vaccine is an immediate, intermediate, and long-term. We've been talking about that a lot to the press. As I mentioned, there's 15 million doses that the government owns. NIAID is doing a dilutional study to ask a simple question. If you dilute it one to five or one to 10, can you get the same degree of safety and take rate? It is likely that one to five, though obviously we're scientists, we need to do the experiment, will result in a comparable take rate to undiluted. We know that from preliminary data of one to 10 versus one to 100. If that's the case, we'll have approximately 75 million doses available and that experiment ends at the end of January, the beginning of February. Intermediate and long-term is to make second generation and do what is probably the most accelerated revving up of vaccine production on the second generation or tissue culture-based one, at least in my memory, hoping to get about 300 million doses by the end of the year 2002. This is something that maybe some of us here have never seen. Uh, Civilian attacks will be sudden and unexpected. The military goes in with their gas masks and other things. They're vaccinated. They understand what the threat is and they expect it. The difficulty with the civilian population, the potential agents are more varied. We have a varied population and it is really unexpected, at least in the realm of normal everyday living. Let me stop. So if you can't already see this developing pattern happening here, let me try to explain a little bit. If you really dig into all of the bioterrorism fear-mongering following 9-11, a great deal of the public discussion, like the government officials, the hearings, these you know, panel talks, about 50% of it was about smallpox bioterrorism. Now, this may be hard to believe for people who barely remember this happening, but if you were in government at the time, if you were a journalist at the time following these hearings, following the discussions on the Hill, this is what was happening 50% of the time. And the other pattern developing here is that the Bush administration seemed to prefer to put out sort of these lower level PR faces like Dr. Anthony Fauci or Tommy Thompson of Health and Human Services to take the brunt of the questions and to try to explain all the ins and outs of how we would respond to a smallpox bioterrorism attack. Now, it seems like instead of giving Tommy Thompson, you know, the role of answering questions about an imminent smallpox bioterrorist attack, for some reason, the Bush administration decided to give this role to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, obviously, he's talking very out of his depth, you know, fear-mongering just alongside the Bush administration about the possibility of bioterrorist attacks, future ones um, happening in our civilian population. So Dr. Fauci continues to be the main face, the main emissary from the Bush administration to interface with other people from government, Congress, senators about this subject. On November 2nd, 2001, there's a particularly interesting hearing where Arlen Specter, the infamous Republican senator who invented the magic bullet theory in the JFK Warren Commission. He has an exchange with Fauci where it seems like he actually wants Fauci to go further. He has an exchange with Fauci um, 
it's not really a heated exchange, but he's trying to push Fauci into admitting that we do need to basically inoculate the entire public for smallpox right away. Now, what's fascinating is Arlen Specter goes into this discussion with the completely incorrect belief that one in 6,000 Americans would instantly die from getting smallpox vaccination. Yet, even though he carries this belief, he still believes that we need to do mandatory inoculations. He even volunteers up his own granddaughters as participants and people that he thinks should get the vaccine. He even gets Fauci to sort of admit the same, that given the risk factors, he would vaccinate his own children against smallpox. Now, I guess the thing that makes this slightly less draconian than it could be is both men end up agreeing that for now, the best course of action is voluntary to make all the vaccines available for Americans to let them know that there's the possibility of a smallpox attack, even though there isn't, and to give them the choice to vaccinate on their own. Yet what's happening sort of on the other side of this discussion is this idea that if a smallpox bioterrorist attack was imminent, meaning if there was some kind of intelligence to suggest that it was, or if it was actually happening, then a mandatory involuntary inoculation program would kick in. Now, I should also say here that there was debate going back and forth internally behind the scenes about making it mandatory regardless, making it mandatory across the board for every American, regardless of intelligence, regardless of the possibility. So check out this bizarre interchange between Mr. Magic Bullet Arlen Specter and Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, when you take the likelihood of a bad reaction or even death, uh, but I question that um, in the context of a, a bioterrorist attack. Now, that's very, very hard to quantify, uh, but it seems to me as a matter of uh, uh, common sense that uh, vaccination uh, may, may, may be uh, preferable, that those odds are are totally changed. What about that, Dr. LeDuc? For, 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 first of all, what, what, what are the risks with vaccination? I'd heard one out of 4,000 uh, would result in death. Um, Dr. Fossey says no. What are the risks, Dr. No, Fossey? There's a bracket depending on the study, and the, and the bracket goes from anywhere from one to six per million deaths. There are a lot of serious complications that don't necessarily result in death. So why not, why not vaccinate if the risks are that, uh, of that proportion? Dr. Well, Fossey? I, yeah, yeah. As I said before, Senator Specter, I believe that we should seriously consider that depending upon what the risks are. Right now, the risk is unclear with regard to the uh, unleashing of a smallpox bioterrorism attack. If one has... Dr. Fossey, are the risks ever going to be other than unclear? Yeah, they are. But, but if you have good intelligence or an index case, l l l let me, if you would permit me, uh, Senator, to just very quickly go through some scenario. You have very good intelligence that we know there is clearly uh, smallpox available and it will be used as a bioterrorism weapon. That is ways towards what you're alluding to. So I think we're on the same channel. I, you, you're not hearing me say that we should not do that. Well, uh, 
I do not think that we're ever going to have intelligence to tell us uh, that a, 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 a bioterrorist attack with smallpox is imminent. Right. If we couldn't find out that they were about to crash into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, right. we're not going to find that out. Our intelligence, we just can't rely upon our intelligence. So I think the time is upon us now to get the maximum amount of vaccine available, which we've already discussed, I agree. and then uh, at a minimum to leave it up to people to make a decision as to whether they want to be vaccinated. That's not really a governmental decision. Tell the American people what the risks are, have the vaccine available, and let them make the decision. That's an entirely my, reasonable uh, approach. My, right? my, my judgment right. would be to have my four granddaughters vaccinated. I, if, I, it's one, yeah. if it's one in a million that they're going to have an adverse reaction, our job is to get the vaccine available. But I, I, I don't think that it's not your province to decide what the risk factor is of bioterrorism. Uh, that's, that's the province of, uh, uh, of the Department of Defense or the Central Intelligence Agency, or perhaps some inputs from the Congress. But you, you, uh, you, you tell us what the risks are and get us the vaccine and let's leave it up to the American people uh, to make their choice. What you say makes very good sense, Senator. And as a matter of fact, myself personally, my own children, I would take the risk of getting them vaccine if we were given the choice of having it. So I agree with you and I think that's something that should be discussed in detail because it makes sense. Now we're on the same wavelength. Yeah, okay. Put aside the, the risk factor. Uh, we aren't going to figure that out any better than we know it now. Let's get the vaccine available and let's uh, have the fathers and maybe even some of the grandfathers make choices. What a weird level of acquiescence, right, from the right. Instead of questioning Fauci like we see now or these theatrical, you know, performances, maybe besides Rand Paul, who seems a little more serious than I guess some of these other right wingers who question Fauci all the time on his rhetoric and push back against what he's saying. Here we have the right and actually some of the left, as I played for you earlier, Bernie Sanders, eagerly trying to push Fauci to even go further in some instances. And it's also a bit surreal to hear someone even like Arlen Specter, who's from a different era, um, you know, even in right after the September 11th attacks, like putting out a statement like this is a time for like grandfathers and fathers just to decide like what, like what, like a grandfather is going to decide, like you're going to be the ones to decide if your granddaughter is going to inoculated, not her parents or her mother is not going to be involved in this. It just seems like such a weird misogynistic, like classic, like the men of the family, you know, the, the, the men in charge uh, decide what's best for their family um, kind of mentality, which is just sort of, you know, gross and, and strange to hear. An issue of Science Magazine released on the same day as this hearing, November 2nd, 2001, with the headline Bioterrorism, has an article or a cover story about how much protection remains from the smallpox inoculations that were already given to the American public in the 1970s. And the article seems to have contradictory information in it. First, it says that people who were born after the early 70s, when most countries stopped vaccinating against smallpox, would be highly susceptible to the virus and that it could potentially kill 30% of those people. It also tries to make the argument that anyone inoculated with smallpox in the early 70s, who was born before, 
still has some protection. But then the article makes it very clear that there's really no evidence to know that if that vaccine will still offer protection this long after, and that there are some experts who say that it won't even matter that people in the 70s got inoculated, that everyone still gets to be inoculated to actually protect against a pandemic. So there's already some mixed information circulating in the press about this. There's sort of this, you know, sigh of relief. Oh, you know, if you were born before the 70s, you don't have to worry uh, because you're fine. You're already inoculated. That sort of relief, that idea that those people didn't have to worry is sort of being eroded right now in the media cycle after 9-11. And what they're trying to do is make people feel as if you are really not protected, even if you did get smallpox inoculation and you still have your scar from that inoculation. On that same evening of this hearing, ABC Evening News runs a report hosted by Peter Jennings, where they cover some of the congressional debate with Anthony Fauci on the Hill for the need for smallpox vaccines. They also detail a study at St. Louis University on the smallpox vaccine's side effects. They interview someone from the CDC named James LeDuc, who says it will take a year to produce 3 million doses. And then they play clips of Dr. Anthony Fauci commenting on the risks of the smallpox vaccine. This clip of this ABC News special is accessible using the Vanderbilt TV archives. It is closed again during the holiday season, so I was not able to access them. But if anyone wants to pull any of these clips, please do. Um, if you'd like to help contribute some donations to pull some of these clips, usually pulling an individual clip that's about four minutes long costs about anywhere from $30 to $50 off their website. Two days later, we still have mainstream news articles coming out about the possibility of a smallpox attack. An article that appears on the front page of the New York Times called U.S. Sets Up Plan to Fight Smallpox in Case of Attack by Lawrence K. Altman. Officials at the CDC and Prevention, which is taking the steps, say they have no evidence that anyone is readying a terrorist attack using smallpox, a disease that was eradicated worldwide 21 years ago. But they say smallpox is so deadly that it is important to prepare for any attack. The smallpox virus is known to exist only in laboratories in the United States. But germ warfare experts suspect that other countries, including North Korea and Iraq, may have secretly obtained stocks. Last week, the disease centers vaccinated about 140 members of epidemiologic teams that can be summoned at a moment's notice to examine a suspected case anywhere in the country. This week, the centers will begin a series of training courses in smallpox for certain of its own employees. Our concerns are not limited to anthrax, said Dr. James M. Hughes, who directs the agency's Center for Infectious Diseases. Those concerns include diseases like botulism, plague, tularemia, and smallpox. Smallpox is of particular concern because it can spread quickly. In a military exercise last summer called Dark Winter, researchers simulated a smallpox attack on Oklahoma City. The epidemic quickly soared out of control, spreading to 25 states and millions of people. So once again, it does seem like Dark Winter set the template for how this fear was able to stay alive. The Dark Winter seems to have been the formative thing that set all of this in motion. The same evening that ABC News runs 
a segment on smallpox bioterrorism. CNN Wolf Blitzer runs two segments of his own, and one of them they interview Dr. Fauci. The media hysteria continues again in the New York Times. On November 6, 2001, a headline runs called Victor's Fear Old Foe Pox. Joaquin Duarte thought his 1939 battle with smallpox, the sweats, the delirium, and the scarring sores were among the scourge's last gasps in this country. Six decades later, he is sweating over the possibility that terrorists will bring it back. It's pretty bad, said Duarte, 81, recalling the days he lay inside his covered wagon, a tent of blankets struggling not to scratch the pus-filled pox. I wouldn't want anybody to go through it. It's an awful thing to go through. Health officials are worried, too, that one of the greatest triumphs of public health, the eradication of this terrible virus, could be in peril. So much so that they are ordering 300 million doses of vaccine, enough for every American, in case smallpox reemerges. Again, the New York Times drops this completely unverified information. Still, Iraq and North Korea are believed to hold covert supplies of smallpox they're talking about. Dr. Donald A. Henderson, a federal disease control official who later led the World Health Organization's smallpox eradication effort. Henderson, who is 73, was chosen last week by the Bush administration as a top bioterrorism official, employed a strategy of rapid containment building a firewall around victims by vaccinating everyone with whom they had contact. It was an important step. The fact that we were able to stop smallpox by identifying cases and vaccinating contacts clearly opened the way to a different strategy than panicked mass vaccination. Now, even though they don't say it here, Specifically, what they're talking about is one of the last times they found like a emergent case of smallpox and they were worried it had already spread. They didn't order max vaccinating the entire American public and Canadian public. What they did was something called ring vaccination, which basically is a form of quarantining and contact tracing and vaccinating people in a specific network. It's sort of like the technology that's being used for COVID, the draconian surveillance stuff for contact tracing, especially in other countries, combined with sort of an emergency plan to vaccinate only a select number of people and keep them in isolation and quarantine. So as draconian as that sounds, it's actually slightly less draconian than the idea of just mass vaccinating everybody just because of the mere possibility of a smallpox bioterrorism attack. Now, it's no coincidence that the media is continuing to talk about this in such a coordinated fashion, piggybacking off of the fear of the anthrax attack. And it's no coincidence that they all have little diagrams and you know graphics showing how smallpox spreads. It does seem like they were handed basically government packages and press releases from the CDC, from Fauci and other people in order to just spread this information in their newspapers. So for example... On the 6th of November, Los Angeles Times has a lot of stuff in that particular issue about anthrax and bioterrorism, but then they have a whole section about smallpox, showing the symptoms and treatment of smallpox, how it spreads, the history of smallpox pandemics. And it's showing how it spreads with a sort of creepy-looking infographic of a silhouette of a man and a close-up on his skin who's growing blisters and then scabs. Now, in this little LA Times infographic, 
they say just straight up that the that the vaccine will only prevent infection for 10 years. So this again flies in the face of this idea that if you were inoculated in the early 70s, you were still fine. This infographic claims that it only lasts for 10 years. So in reality, that wouldn't even matter. Now, just some more examples of how they're rolling out, sort of soft rolling out this idea of ring vaccination as an emergency response. There's another article that Reuters runs on the same day, quoting again the new bioterrorism Bush appointee, Dr. Donald Henderson. It says, the man in charge of getting the nation ready for public health emergencies knows what to do if smallpox breaks out. Quarantine the patient immediately and vaccinate everyone he or she has been around. So again, sort of rolling out this idea of ring vaccination as an acceptable response. This seems sort of like a middle way, not a draconian as the full mass vaccination idea, but, you know, slightly draconian um, and seeming like it's reasonable is how they're sort of trying to present this ring vaccination emergency response. And then this is some weird Russia phobia, you know, rhetoric mixed together with, again, resurrecting that talking point that there's smallpox still out there that can be used by a terrorist. Today, we do not have the confidence that the Russians are not at this moment proceeding with research on biological weapons. He said the former Soviet weapons plan had succeeded in weaponizing smallpox, putting it into warheads that could fit into inter intercontinental ballistic missiles. Each missile would release melon-sized spheres that would spin as they approached the ground spewing out clouds of smallpox virus to be breathed in by victims. The concern is that Russian scientists are not being paid at all well, Henderson said. Most labs are half-staffed at best. Many scientists are desperate for the money. I mean, this just sounds like an absolutely cartoonish scenario. So to think that this guy who was in charge of eradicating smallpox worldwide would be putting out rhetoric that this cartoonish that Russia has ballistic missiles that throw out melon-shaped objects that spew out clouds of smallpox. I mean, it just sounds completely fake. But again, this topic of Russia keeps coming up in this smallpox bioterrorism discussion. It came up a little bit in the anthrax discussion, you know, here and there. In fact, those St. Petersburg hoax letters that appeared to have been coordinated with the real killer or were done by the same group of killers seems to be referencing St. Petersburg, Russia, almost symbolically. That's what some people theorize from the time, that whoever was sending those St. Petersburg letters wanted to evoke Russia. In fact, they even wrote Russian characters in one of the letters, Cyrillic characters. So, strangely, that Russia narrative never really took off with anthrax, like where the people got anthrax. But it sort of got rerouted into this whole discussion about smallpox. It would always fucking come up. So we do have to ask the question, what was the purpose, just rhetorically from the Bush administration side, of trying to put Russia in the crosshairs as if they're at fault if a smallpox pandemic were to happen or an attack were to happen? We need to look at Russia, basically, would be the end result of that line of logic if one were to happen. You know, because even if Iraq got it, they would have gotten it from Russia. You know, even though there's people in that Judith Miller panel talking about how Iraq was developing brain pox and things like that. It does seem like if a smallpox bioterror attack were to happen, it would basically be like a declaration of war against Russia or the former Soviet Union. Or we would have to 
shut the country down and inspect it to figure out what the hell is going on and take power over their, you know, new democratic government or whatever. Now, the news about smallpox and the rollout for a vaccination program continues into early November. In the New York Times, an article called Smallpox Vaccine Costlier Than Expected by Keith Radsher says that Tommy Thompson said that procuring 246 million doses of smallpox vaccine would cost more than 509 million he had previously predicted. He told the Office of Management and Budget today that the cost would be substantially higher, although he did not specify what it would be. The government had sought to pay a little more than $2 a dose. He said, there's no question the request for a proposal, the bids, came in higher than I had anticipated, Mr. Thompson told reporters. The proposals are all below $8, but they are much higher than I had anticipated. It says, two rounds of contract talks have narrowed the field from 10 companies to four and now to three. So it was down to, well, the original company, Acambis, now was in competition with two other major American pharmaceutical companies, Merck and GlaxoSmithKline. Now, again, how fucking absurd it is that the government will be trying to get low bids from pharmaceutical companies. I mean, to show where the power really comes from here. I mean, the absurdity of the fact that we don't have a government that could just say, no, you produce this for us at this price. Like, we'll give you maybe some kind of subsidy or something later down the line, but you you must produce this now for us at this price. I mean, there isn't, we still don't have that kind of leverage. Pfizer and Moderna still haven't been forced to open source their vaccines. I mean, that's pretty fucking crazy that the government still allows them to have that kind of power. Now, this is a little disturbing and brings up implications that I think you know, are really too deep to really go into on this podcast. But you do have to wonder, Tommy Thompson here announcing again in the Washington Post, an article that came out directly after this one in the New York Times, is saying that the cost could be quadruple the 509 million he originally estimated. 509 million would have been roughly one fourth the entire bioterrorism budget, which still seems like quite a significant amount just to acquire vaccines for everybody based on a completely imaginary, unrealistic scenario, one-fourth of your budget. But here's where it gets crazy. Because it's going to cost quadruple the original amount of $509 million that he thought, the actual estimated cost of procuring smallpox vaccine for every American would cost the entire $1.9 billion of the entire bioterrorism budget. Now, to me, it seems like, you know, a bigger priority would have been to make sure Cipro was widely available to every American, or actually not necessarily Cipro, but a safer antibiotic that would prevent anthrax infection. Cipro is actually a very hardcore and dangerous antibiotic that can give you permanent muscle damage, tendinitis permanently. So that wouldn't have been the best idea, but you would think that at the very least they would make some kind of anthrax preventative antibiotic widely available. Well, it sounds to me, based on all this information that I've dug up, is that they actually were way more prioritizing the manufacturing of these new smallpox vaccines and rolling out this program. It seemed to, at least at this time in early November, they were projecting it would take up their entire bioterrorism budget, their entire budget. Now, this is funny too, because it says that this idea of a smallpox attack, this is what it says in the Washington Post article, 
took on a, a, a renewed sense of urgency as one of the leading smallpox authorities warned it was conceivable that former Soviet scientists were helping to weaponize the smallpox virus for nations such as Iran, Iraq, Libya, and North Korea. You know, this is the classic defector Soviet scientist trope. And this is what the guy who eradicated smallpox for World Health Organization is putting out there. Now, we know that he wasn't the only one putting out there, even though, you know, he was a Bush official and he was saying this. There were other people, as I've read to you in this uh, podcast multiple times, Judith Miller in her book Germs, a lot of people were pushing this idea that Soviet defectors were supplying or had somehow given smallpox over to these rogue nations. Now, a day later on November 8th, 2001, we get officially our first statement by the president himself about smallpox and vaccines. Now, this is a little media spot that Bush did where he toured the CDC. And it seemed to me like the whole thing was sort of a stage PR stunt where it was like Bush, you know, touring the CDC, checking things out, looking at what, you know, they're doing to prevent bioterrorism. But then this sort of seemingly impromptu press conference takes place while he's touring the facility and he's asked a very like stock question. It seems like this was sort of Bush's moment to make a statement about all this talk we've been having. Now he's he's standing up in this laboratory and someone from the press who is shadowing him that day says, Mr. President, what's your take on the call for a universal application of smallpox vaccines for all Americans? Now, the way that question is asked is very interesting because it says, what's your take on the call? Well, obviously, the president himself is very much in the loop on this and has been from the very beginning, even though he hasn't said anything. So this is sort of like asking the question as if Bush is just responding to what people are talking about out there, you know, policymakers or suggestions, when in reality, the Bush administration was behind this rollout and behind this talk. Just because they had Tommy Thompson and Fauci going out there talking about it doesn't mean that they weren't completely behind steering this. So the way the question is asked is is just bizarrely manipulative. What's your take on the call for a universal application of smallpox vaccines for all Americans? And George W. Bush responds, well, we're in the process of, I'm looking at different options for smallpox. One thing is for certain, we need to make sure vaccines are available if there. If there were to ever be an outbreak. As to whether or not we ought to have mandatory vaccinations, I'm working with Tommy Thompson on that. One of my concerns is, if we were to have universal vaccination, some might lose their life, and I would be deeply concerned about a vaccination program that would cause people to lose their life. But I'm looking at all the options, all possibilities, and will work with the smartest minds in America to develop the best strategies and how to deal with a potential smallpox attack. Now, again, this is part of a coordinated media rollout. ABC News, CBS News, and NBC News all ran programs that evening about bioterrorist smallpox risks right after Bush tours the CDC. NBC News' broadcast about it was probably the most intense, where it was just all about smallpox. And it sort of went into this idea of, what if we can't get all the smallpox vaccine in time? Well, one of the things suggested in this program, and this had already been talked about in the past, it's been talked about 
for pandemics in general, what do you do if you have a low supply of vaccine stock and you need to distribute it to more people than you have doses for? Well, this concept of dilution is often brought up. You can dilute vaccines and they're not as effective, but they're almost as effective. That diluting them doesn't lower their effectiveness that much, but it's still, it, it could save you a lot of doses. That's the going theory. I don't know if that's true or not, but this has apparently been something believed in medical science for a while, that especially with immunization vaccines like smallpox, that you could dilute a large supply of it and still inoculate people almost just as effectively. Now, Dr. Ken Alibic, this actual defector from the Soviet Union, uh, again appears on television. Now, Ken Alibic is someone who actually was a suspect in the 2001 anthrax attacks, along with his mentor, William Broad. Now, as far as I understand, Dr. Ken Alibic was one of the first people to tell the United States government that there was some kind of accidental weaponized anthrax release in the Soviet Union in the 70s that ended up killing something like 100 people. There's almost no information about this incident. Russia has never admitted to it. There's been almost virtually no witnesses to it as far as I know. But Ken Alibic, this defector, actually is the one who claims that this happened. Ken Alibic is also one of the people who claims that Russia produced X amount of smallpox virus to use as a weapon. So just in case that wasn't clear, Dr. Ken Alibic was actually also one of the anthrax suspects done during the, invest the FBI's investigation. This guy who supplied a lot of the rhetoric, kind of like a curveball style figure from Russia, claiming that Russia was doing all these horrific things with really no evidence, he is later a suspect in the anthrax investigation, and he is considered not a suspect anymore. And there are people who have theories that the St. Petersburg letter specifically may have actually been trying to frame someone like Ken Alibic. Ken Alibic is also colleagues with Dr. Stephen Hatfield. So two things I just want to emphasize here that I think are already very clear is that hardly anybody on the right end of the spectrum, I mean, virtually nobody, I don't even know if like Ron Paul said anything about it. Nobody that I know of on the right side of the spectrum opposed this idea of mass vaccination. It was actually people on the right, like Arlen Specter, Ted Stevens, people who are very much known as just generic right-wingers, were very, very eager uh, to push this vaccine on the public for no reason, for no reason whatsoever, simply because of 9-11. Very different from what we see now with right-wingers even being told by their media personalities to resist the COVID vaccine. Now, why is that? Well, I would say that largely most of the people on the right right now who are resisting taking the vaccine are not doing it because they believe in civil liberties or body autonomy, even though those are, those are two totally valid issues. I believe that if Bush was in power right now and there was some kind of terrorist attack and the propaganda was that you need to take the COVID vaccine to prevent some kind of COVID bioterrorist attack, pretty much the entire right wing would take it. I don't think that the left or the liberals would resist it. As you can see after anthrax, even Bernie Sanders was eager to push Fauci to fearmonger even more about this. So I'm not saying that the left would have been the ones to resist it either. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the right resisting this now is artificially generated. It is not an organic civil liberties resistance. 
media personalities are telling them to. They're actually, I would say there even seems to be a little bit of a strategy of tension being thrown down the pike by some of these right-wing media outlets, especially the big corporate ones like Fox. Why is the Pfizer CEO going on Fox for softball roundtable discussions? Meanwhile, Tucker is acting like the vaccines are really dangerous. Something is not quite adding up there. And I think that you can actually see, if you go on our smallpox archive, our cache on our Google Drive link that we'll provide with this podcast, you'll see lots of legitimate historical examples of vaccine resistance, vaccine mandate resistance from people who were not being given shadow money or weren't part of some kind of strategy of tension psyop by a faction of the elites. These There are a lot of more organic, real, legitimate, vaccine-resistant writings in the past. There's a lot of writings about politics of pandemics written in the past. In various eras of history, people with leprosy were associated with poverty and filth. Even in some parts of history, people with smallpox were associated with filth or unsanitary conditions. There have been caste systems developed throughout history based on pandemics and diseases and vaccinated versus unvaccinated. This sort of politic paradigm has a very deep-seated history, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. And I believe that whoever is playing into this political climate now, and I'm not just talking about the liberal and corporate dogma, the pro-vaccine COVID fear-mongering dogma. I'm also talking about the oppositional media voices that you see boosted against it. It does seem like they're sort of hand in glove. They sort of serve the same purpose. I mean, it's funny because Trump's one true statement that I actually kind of resonated with me when he was responding to Candace Owens about the vaccines is he said that by people not taking the vaccine or like going against it, you're playing into the hands of the vaccine pushers. That may sound like a ridiculous statement, but in a way he's right. Because if you prolong the mentality that you just should not take this vaccine while it's voluntary, it actually could create more leverage and more of a pressure valve, more pressure building for mandates like vaccine laws. You know, if things get so out of control because so many people are resisting the vaccine, then eventually they might have to be like, okay, now we have to clamp down a law. Now, I don't think Trump was actually saying that, but that's where my mind goes about this, what political purpose it could serve for the elites to get a bunch of people to not want to take the vaccine at first. It could just be a way for laws to be more easily passed, more clampdowns to come. I don't know. I'm obviously just speculating, but I will say that a lot of the anti-vaccine rhetoric does seem manufactured. And that's not to say at all that I don't think it's legitimate to be anti-vaccine. There are plenty of people who have completely legitimate reasons to be resistant to taking the vaccine. I think you're perfectly entitled to believe that and feel that way. But do not be fooled by these big boosted sort of, you know, alt media personalities and act like they're, they're on your side, who are taking advantage of your understandable gut feelings of wanting to resist this. For example, there's a guy named Robert Malone who just went on Joe Rogan's show um, to talk about how the Pfizer vaccine is dangerous in, in various ways. And this guy got his Twitter account banned like right before he appeared on Joe Rogan. Now, you know, you would think 
you know, without being super skeptical about it, you would just assume, well, this guy got banned. Obviously, he's saying things that they, they're deeming COVID misinformation, which is an overly blanket statement. So, you know, maybe he was saying something important and he shouldn't have been banned. Well, I don't believe in deplatforming anyone. I don't think people should be banned. But just because someone is banned and is talking badly about Pfizer doesn't mean that what they're also saying is necessarily agenda-free or that it's honest truth-telling. This is something I think people really need to get into their heads. Robert Malone actually did take over $1.4 million from other pharmaceutical companies. So let me just say this. If you are personally someone who is railing against Pfizer and you're not telling people that you also took $1.4 million from another series of pharmaceutical companies... Uh, to me, that's just textbook dishonesty, and it should honestly make you a completely untrustworthy figure. But yet, simply because you are railing against the elites, you know, in this sort of narrow fashion, even though you're signal boosted on a $300 million Spotify podcast, that what you're saying is renegade and a threat to the establishment. Well, there's something really fucking fishy going on with a lot of this shit right now. And we've entered into a media era where it's not cut and dry anymore. Be careful which heroes you prop up who are resisting this. Be, be really careful. Um, and I also think what I'm showing you in this podcast so far are clear examples of how Anthony Fauci was sort of trotted out there as like a PR agent for other people's policies. Fauci himself may be calling a lot of the shots in the COVID era, but I would say that he's probably being steered. So to use him as the avatar as all of your hatred that this man is at the heart of all corruption in the U.S. government and the pandemic response right now, I think is you're sort of falling for a trap that's been set for you. Fauci is birdcage liner that somehow has never been changed, even though the liner is just covered in bird feces. I know I stole an Alex Jones line there, but it's true. Fauci is a birdcage liner that hasn't needed to be cleaned yet, but that's what he is. Um, so just keep that in mind, too, that like you could deduce this all down to Fauci and make it all about his contradictory statements in the media about kids getting vaccines or whatever. But I really do think you're getting distracted in sort of the rigmarole in, in, in things that are ultimately not super important about what's going on right now. I do think some of the more conspiratorial media narratives trying to actually figure out who's steering this agenda like in the corporate sphere um, and, and then that sphere is more interesting. You know, find out who Fauci is linked to. Find out who's giving him talking points. I think that's more of a valuable avenue of investigation. He's just a face. He's just a PR guy. And yeah, he's a criminal. He's a piece of shit. He's corrupt as fuck. But he's been in there for like every administration. He's their go-to guy. He's kind of like a Colin Powell, you know, trying to maintain this sort of bipartisan spirit in government. Now, getting into the middle of November here, there's still discussion in the papers about the bidding contracts between Merck, Glaxo, SmithKline, Acambis, and now I guess there's another company in the mix, Baxter International, all competing to, I guess, you know, give the lowest bids to the government for who's going to make these 249 smallpox vaccines in case of a essentially an imaginary event that's never going to happen. 
It's also worth noting that you notice in, in a lot of this talk about making vaccines and trying to get bids for cheap vaccines, they're not talking about building a new vaccine like based on DNA sequencing smallpox. Even though, as I was telling you in the last episode, that was the argument for keeping the stockpiles around. That was the argument for not destroying them, was to develop treatment and better vaccines. Well, by this time, they had not developed better vaccines. So just like Fauci said, anywhere from one to six out of a million people could instantly die from even the vaccines that they're asking these companies to manufacture now. They would still be based on live vaccinia virus, which produces a mild version of cowpox, and a certain segment of the population would simply not be able to survive getting live virus. They would, their immune system would not be able to handle it. On November 13th, 2001, a headline runs in the Associated Press that says, Group, World Not Ready for Smallpox by Emma Ross. The article starts by saying, It is a nightmare that has gained the public's attention since September 11th. A terrorist walks into an airport and releases the smallpox virus, a scourge that killed millions of people before it was eradicated more than two decades ago. 17 unsolved cases of anthrax in the United States have made the threat of a chemical or biological terror attack seem even more real and have prompted the U.S. government to start stockpiling enough smallpox vaccine, 300 million doses by the end of 2002, to protect every American citizen. Our Western countries are taking similar steps. Would Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda network unleash a disease that could end up killing millions of Muslims? Scientists say the developing world will be least ready to deal with smallpox, which would entail paying for the production of millions of doses. Now, what's interesting here is it's sort of debating, well, yeah, the terrorists are crazy and, and you know insane, but would bin Laden be willing to kill this many Muslims because Muslim countries, some of the more undeveloped ones, will suffer the worst from a worldwide smallpox release. But it's it's just interesting the way that this is sort of said matter-of-factly as if everyone's attention has been focused on this. What the article starts by saying, it is a nightmare that has gained the public's attention since September 11th. A terrorist walks into an airport and releases the smallpox virus. I mean, I don't know if that could be considered a form of gaslighting or projection. What, what kind, I don't know what psychologically you would call that type of writing, but it is not true. I mean, I barely remember this. So to say that it's a nightmare that has gained the public's attention since September 11th, that's just not true at all. Bioterrorism barely gained the public's attention until the anthrax attacks a month later. So to say that this is a nightmare that people were deathly afraid of after 9-11 is fucking ludicrous. Nobody even remembers this hysteria now. I mean, I don't talk a lot about, but other people do, you know, which is fine. It's just not something I like talking about very much, even though I share some of their thoughts. But we see a lot of talk about, you know, the COVID propaganda in the media and how things just keep changing, how there's all this hysteria and fear-mongering. Even I was very upset and whiplashed by how dangerous they said COVID was at the very beginning and how much less dangerous it ended up being. I wasn't relieved as much as I was 
thrown for a loop and felt emotionally whiplashed by the whole experience. It was it was very disturbing. And there's media narratives that continue to do that all the time with COVID, and it continues to be disturbing. But what's different is this is a brand new virus. It is a developing situation. So some of that, you have to chalk up to just that, some of it. I'm not saying that there isn't manipulation and lying and fear-mongering and over-exaggerating to try to get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. Obviously, that's happening. But some of it, you know, whatever percentage of it, it's because this is a new situation. It's an emerging, relatively unknown situation where the data is still coming in every day. Smallpox was well-documented. We already knew how many people would die from the vaccines. We already knew what it was like. And yet, after 9-11, to think that suddenly the media would be fear-mongering about us about this and act like it was a normal thing to be worried about is fucking crazy. In some ways, it's actually, to me, more disturbing than the media's response to COVID right now, because this never happened. It was never going to happen. On November 17th, the U.S. National Institute of Health started sponsoring a new clinical trial where they actually take all of the frozen and refrigerated old 70s vaccine stockpile and diluting existing smallpox vaccine. 684 adults will be randomly assigned to receive a full-strength formulation of the vaccine or a 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 dilution. Participants who do not develop a scab at the injection site or produce antibodies in the blood seven to nine days after vaccination will be revaccinated with the same formulation they received initially. So they haven't even really known yet if diluting the smallpox vaccine is going to work yet. This is uh, like early testing, I guess, of us doing this with our old stockpiles. Now, here's an article talking about Dr. Henderson, the guy who is credited as being the one who helped eradicate smallpox for the World Health Organization, talks about how he worked as an advisor to Donna Ishalala, the predecessor to Tommy Thompson. So Dr. Henderson actually worked in the Clinton administration about some of this stuff. And he claims in this article for New York Times called He Routed Smallpox, Now Tackles Bioterror, It claims that he wasn't concerned about bioterror until he linked up with Ken Alibic, one of the guys who the FBI suspected as potentially being a person of interest in the anthrax attacks. It says, while working for Mr. Clinton, he learned of the work of Ken Alibic, who ran the Soviet Union's biological weapons program and claimed to have developed smallpox as a weapon. But while Dr. Henderson became more concerned about bioterrorism, enough so that he founded the John Hopkins Center, he nonetheless advocated destroying the official smallpox stocks for several reasons, he and those close to him say. Now, what's fascinating is Dr. Henderson was still advocating for destroying the world's remaining smallpox samples, but yet was one of the biggest proponents in spreading this theory that smallpox bioterrorism was a real possibility because of this probably fake information from Ken Alibic. Now, Dr. Henderson later agrees to take a job working for George W. Bush, as I told you earlier. And he took a job with George W. Bush, even though Bush also refuses to destroy the 
world's last remaining smallpox samples. The one that we have still at the CDC headquarters in Atlanta. But just like Clinton before him, I mean, Clinton decided to do the same thing, claiming we can, you know, genetically sequence it and come up with like better vaccines and treatments or whatever. Now it's announced at the end of November, November 28th, 2001, and keep in mind, the anthrax attacks are still ongoing. The last victim, Ottilie Lundgren, hasn't even died yet. But the companies that would end up actually making profit off of supplying this vaccine to the United States is British pharmaceutical company Acambis and Baxter International. They won the U.S. government contract to produce 155 million doses of a smallpox vaccine. And Tommy Thompson says that they only ended up paying around $428 million for the doses. So that's sort of back to the original one-fourth of the entire bioterror budget allotment projection instead of the entire budget. So somehow they were able to get these companies to cut down the price to like one-fourth of what they originally quoted. But at the same time, I mean, how much money did they make off of this? They obviously didn't give these vaccines to them at cost. Now, following this announcement, which came out as a Reuters wire story in the morning of November 28th, again, some coordinated TV rollouts, uh, pretty much broadcasting the same news package. Now, we have one that night on CBS Evening News, Bioterrorism Smallpox Vaccine. We have another one on NBC Evening News by Tom Brokaw. Bioterrorism smallpox vaccine order. We have one for CNN Evening News with reporter Aaron Brown and John King called Terrorism and the Smallpox Vaccine. Now, in the CNN reports, in the NBC News reports, and in the CBS News reports, they're all characterizing this as a White House order. So again, just so there's no confusion, this is not Dr. Fauci and Tommy Thompson deciding because they are so-called health experts how to handle the situation. This was directly ordered by the Bush administration. And this is how it was portrayed in the news after this contract with Acambis and Baxter International was secured. And again, it seems like they're just regular old vaccinia, cowpox-based vaccines, the dangerous kind, the kind that's old-fashioned, something that has not been altered or refined in any way. In fact, instead of running human trials on new types of vaccines or prioritizing that, they instead ran trials on diluting old vaccines 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 dilution on something like over 628 human test subjects. A couple days later on November 30th, 2001, a headline runs in the Wall Street Journal called Old Soviet Threat Drives Smallpox Plan with past returning to haunt the U.S. by Marilyn Chase. The crash program to churn out 300 million doses of smallpox vaccine is a hedge against fears that the virus, left over from Soviet weapon stocks and leaked to terrorists, could be unleashed against a populace with waning immunity. A lot of research has gone into making smallpox suitable for use in weapons. In its heyday, the former Soviet bioweapons program churned out 20 tons of smallpox a year by injecting the virus into fertilized eggs. 
That's what the guy on that U.S. AMRID clip from the last episode said. Later, the Soviet Union upgraded its production, cultivating the virus in cultures of monkey kidney cells inside huge bioreactors. The Soviet Union planned for a wartime capacity of 100 tons a year. Smallpox virus, concentrated and treated with chemicals to prevent bacterial contamination, was produced for pouring into bomblets for packing and cluster bombs for deployment abroad TU-95 long-range strategic bombers and for loading onto warheads of intercontinental ballistic missiles. The U.S. is believed to have done smallpox research, but never turned it into a weapon. Doomsday weapons, like the Soviet Union's, amplify primitive attempts of centuries past. British soldiers in the French and Indian War gave tribes contaminated blankets from smallpox hospital in 1763. Now, it does seem like almost all this information in this article, again, comes from Ken Alibic. It says, however, the techniques of manufacturing smallpox are not overwhelmingly complicated, contends Kenneth Alibic, a former top official of the Soviet program known as BioRipyard. The virus is quite stable, he said, and could survive for days in the air if there is no sunlight. Encouragingly, Dr. Alibic says the conventional smallpox vaccine would work against even the most sophisticated of Soviet battle strains. In my opinion, the old vaccine is good enough, he says. We'll contain it. Many people will survive. And more fear-mongering at the end of this article about rogue nations like the Axis of Evil, coined by David Frum, who has smallpox virus now as a topic of anxious speculation. Circumstantial evidence suggests Iraq and North Korea had the virus and might have tried to make it into a weapon, says Jonathan Tucker. Other oft-mentioned candidate countries include Syria and Libya. I mean, wow, what a ridiculous thing to put out in the newspaper. I mean, wow. It's just hard to believe that there was this much trying to tie it to the former Soviet Union. And they don't even mention, like, current Russian government leaders. Do you notice that? They don't talk about, like, Putin... They don't even mention like Boris Yeltsin or any like the former leaders. It's interesting. They don't, they just, it's just very vague thing. It's all coming from Ken Alibic. Now, up until this point, most magazine articles about bioterrorism are all about anthrax. Um, If you look in our anthrax cache archive of files that I've uploaded, uh, some of them were also uploaded by Gumby, you'll find about five different mainstream magazine covers that are all about anthrax that show like envelopes with white powder that show people wearing gas masks that show just scary imagery all about anthrax that was featured on many many magazine covers following the anthrax attacks all throughout october and november but here we have in december 2001 the first magazine cover story in a magazine that's not normally associated with terrorism propaganda, Vanity Fair, called Unprepared for the Worst, Smallpox by Lori Garrett. This is the first mainstream magazine news article that I know of that's all about how the next attack could be smallpox and what we have to do about it. And the article starts off by saying, what if Osama bin Laden has an agreement with Saddam Hussein, allowing al-Qaeda to access Iraq's considerable biological weapons stockpiles. What if scientists from the former Soviet Union, known to have worked on weaponizing smallpox viruses, have sold their expertise on the international armaments black market? 
What if the scattershot anthrax horrors the nation has witnessed since October 4th were writ large and a massive assault on a city? What if the unthinkable really happened? An epidemic on American soil deliberately created by terrorists in order to sow chaos, hysteria, and mass casualties. All of the sudden were fearful, says Brad Roberts, a bioterrorism expert with the Institute for Defense Analysis in Virginia. The classic argument about terrorists is that they have never historically killed as many as they could have. The argument was that it was unnecessary and counterproductive. On September 11th, Roberts says, the terrorists blew that assumption away. I think the attack was in some sense a failure, he says. The ambition must have been to kill far more people. The ambition must have been to bring down the federal government. This isn't traditional terrorism. This is war. Now, this is interesting. U.S. Senator Sam Nunn, who was one of the original people who participated in Operation Dark Winter, says this of 9-11. It removed any hopes that terrorist groups or others might have a threshold beyond which they wouldn't go in terms of causing damage and disease. People have puzzled why bioterrorism has never really been used before, and some have said it's a genie they didn't want to let out of the bottle. I think after September 11th, that comfort is gone. Now, what's interesting is they talk about this group here. I mean, it seems like the article is talking about this group of like bioterrorism preparedness think tankers. It talks about Brad Roberts. It talks about some other people who participated in Dark Winter. Now it's going into Jerome Hauer. Despite dozens of Iraqi obfuscations, deceptions, and cover-ups, UNSCOM scientists were able to gather evidence of a massive bioweapons program featuring production of 84,250 liters of anthrax spores, enough if dried into a powder and properly disseminated to kill every man, woman, and child in the city the size of New York many times over. Even more disturbing were labels found at some Iraqi sites that said smallpox in Arabic. Now, this is interesting because this, again, sort of you know, predates the actual Iraqi UN weapons inspections that happened right before the, we decided to go into Iraq, regardless of the UN vote. This article is sort of making it seem like we should worry that they were not fully inspected. Saddam Hussein never allowed full UNSCOM inspection, let alone destruction of their bioweapons apparatus. Now, they mention another Soviet defector here that's not Ken Alibic. They claim that the U.S. intelligence apparatus got a frightening glimpse of what the Soviet's biological warfare program against the West was like before the fall of the Soviet Union by a man named Vladimir Pesichnik. Now, this is where it gets sort of murky and interesting, and I would actually like to probably read more about exactly what happened here, because after the fall of the Soviet Union, obviously things went into the private sector, and, and this article is claiming that, that American scientists and Russian like biological scientists were collaborating on how to basically like get rid of biological weapons and you know do good things for the world together right after the Soviet Union collapsed and they were working with people who were part of the Soviet Union's biological weapons program to do this and their program i guess became this thing called BioPreparat and this eventually turned into a company called 
Vector. It turned into a virus laboratory called Vector by the mid-90s when the Soviet Union was gone. And it was located outside of a Siberian city called Novosibirsk. Now, there's a lot of information in this article that claims that this is like a ghost town, that this was once like a bustling city, had like thousands, tens of thousands of very educated scientists, virologists working there. But then all of a sudden, the money dried up and they all just lost their jobs and disappeared. Um, The article says, the place had an eerie post-apocalyptic feeling as weeds were overtaking the concrete. Scientific workbenches, seemingly abandoned mid-experiment, were caked with dust. But still resting behind the locked doors were the most lethal pathogens humanity has ever known. In frozen hibernation, genetically modified forms of smallpox, Ebola, influenza, Marburg, security was almost non-existent. Kanat John Alipikov was a senior executive at Vector and rose to the rank of first deputy director. Now a resident of Virginia, he has Americanized his Kazakhstani name to Ken Alibic, and he makes three claims that have shaken the intelligence community. First, Alibic says the Soviet scientists succeeded in fully weaponizing microbes that could withstand missile launches and emissions from jet planes. Alibic also claims knowledge of former bioweapons scientists from the Soviet program now living in Iraq, North Korea, Iran, China, and Cuba. He says that during the 1980s, his staff trained bioweapon makers in several Eastern European countries, as well as Libya, India, Cuba, Iran, and Iraq. Finally, Alibic insists that the Russian Ministry of Defense is still conducting bioweapons research today. Alibic's claims have grown grander the longer he has lived in America. And most of the old guard bioterrorism experts take his current comments, particularly regarding ongoing Russian military research, with a grain of salt. But intelligence sources say that most of the statements he made during his first 1992 debriefing have been verified. And this is just how much the right wing was brainwashed by this at the time, you know, how they were just all just total neocon robots. Um, A Republican congressman, Christopher Shays, talks about how he thinks Iran, Iraq, or Libya could be involved in the next bioterrorist attack. I'm absolutely certain that terrorists, if they don't have access to biological agents now, will, and I'm absolutely certain that they will use them. The expertise exists. The potential that it's being shared with the terrorists is almost a no-brainer. Now, what's fascinating is probably the only rational voice in here brings up how the U.S. government tried to research using sort of economic forms of warfare using bioterror. And this expert quoted in the article actually says that like this type of bioterrorism would be like a much more effective like form of war. She says her name is Jessica Stern from the Harvard University national security expert, something. She says, if I were working in government, I would be thinking of low-tech bioweapons, low-tech chemicals, including industrial chemicals, simple acts of food poisoning. And then it goes on to say that four plant bacteria, for example, developed as germ warfare weapons by the U.S. Army during World War II. Something like it could devastate the American economy without posing any health risk to the terrorists. A deliberate release of foot and mouth disease in a livestock population could cost the economy up to $24 billion. 
I'm sorry that article is so long. Just a couple things that I notice from that article and, and just notice since we're talking about all this. Notice how little China comes up as a potential player in any of this. Why is that? Well, on a surface level, I guess you could say it's because we already had a pretty entrenched economic relationship with China by this time in the Bush administration's early days. But you could also go back to another very interesting incident that I don't think most people remember, which is referred to as the Hainan Island incident. It's probably one of the more alarming international incidents to happen right before 9-11 that probably would have had a more public impact or more public news to go along with it had 9-11 not happened. And that was when a United States Navy intelligence aircraft, like a signals gathering intelligence aircraft, collided with a Chinese Army Navy fighter jet in midair. And this wasn't a Chinese military jet colliding with, you know, a Navy fighter, like right off our coast, of course, it wasn't that. It was us basically like flying almost directly into their fucking airspace. Now, what's fascinating is 24 of the air crew on our side were captured and detained by the Chinese military. Only one person was on their aircraft and they were presumed dead. Their body was never found, missing or dead. There is a lot of speculation about who got access to what technology, what each side learned from, you know, a crash spy plane. This was sort of like the Gary Powers incident during the Cold War. It was probably one of the more the closest things that had happened to that. Yet what we were actually doing over there and what China did, you know, was sort of it kind of got really buried under the rug really quickly. And because 9/11 wasn't that long after this incident, it just sort of disappeared from history. But I'll just say that in general, what is the theme of a lot of these articles that I'm reading you? What is the theme of it other than the obvious, just trying to amp up terrorism, fear-mongering even more, piggybacking off of an already existing bioterrorist attack, anthrax? We know that's a trajectory that's very obvious that the Bush administration and media were always pushing towards, this amped-up, heightened state of everyday it was going to feel like there could be a new terrorist attack that was just around the corner, just over the horizon. That's clear. But there's something a little bit different, I think, about the rhetoric being put out in these smallpox articles than in any of the other terrorism fear-mongering articles. Now, what is it specifically? Well, I would say specifically what it is, is this, it's opening up the door more to the concept of the access of evil. Not just these handful of rogue nations like Iran, Libya, and North Korea, but a whole slew of other nations as well that could have what is essentially a doomsday weapon, something that would be scorched earth to destroy the world just to get one over on the United States. Either a terrorist group might want to do this or another rogue nation, like a quote-unquote powerless rogue nation, that the only way to defeat the United States is to take down the whole world with it. This is not merely this idea that, you know, Iran has religious ideations and would do a preemptive nuclear strike because they're basically like a, a suicide bomber mentality, you know, like that neocon projection on Iran. Like, we can't let Iran get a nuke because they're basically like 
the suicide bombers who attacked us on 9-11. Like, they're just going to blow up the world. That's sort of a Muslim-y Islamophobia way to frame that mindset, and it's limited. However, the smallpox narrative, this idea that smallpox, tons of weaponized smallpox virus that could survive inside like the tips of missiles, ballistic missiles, seems to open the door for any country in the world that doesn't like the United States could, as a last resort, use a doomsday weapon against us. And really, the only prevention that we have against it is mass inoculation. To beat this, you know, imaginary battle in the game theory extrapolation, we would need to get vaccinated. It's sort of, so like, it's that, but it's also opening the door for us to just believe that we are in some new frontier of warfare where now any rogue nation really could pose a real threat to the entire planet. You know, it's not just that Saddam, if we attack him, because keep in mind, this is like way before we went into Iraq. And there were fears and fear-mongering talked about, well, as soon as we attack Iraq, he's going to launch a chemical weapon scud missile over here. You know, that, that fear-mongering came up in the news again. This is more like any rogue nation could like kill the whole world with smallpox if it wanted to. And that's a wild opening that they're creating. And I guess we have to be somewhat thankful that that narrative did not continue to like float out there. And that at least for now, most people do not operate on the belief that, you know, Middle Eastern countries secretly all have like a doomsday weapon where they could just kill us whenever they want. Because this is the narrative that's that they're pushing in this Vanity Fair article and in many other articles that I've read you. And it's also just sort of grotesque that this article of Vanity Fair is on a cover with like Brad Pitt with his shirt off. It's actually a kind of a weird coincidence that the two most important articles about bioterrorism in Vanity Fair, first this really propagandistic one that I'm reading to you about smallpox now, and the Don Foster article where he's you know, examining the St. Petersburg hoax letters, a very important sort of interesting alternate perspective on the anthrax attacks. Don Foster's article appeared in a Vanity Fair with George Clooney shirtless on the beach in swimming trunks. Uh, this article by Laurie Garrett, unprepared for the worst, appears on a Vanity Fair cover with Brad Pitt wearing a shirt, but open, uh, wearing jeans, again, looking like he's in on the beach. So just a sort of weird, grotesque representation of the early 2000s. And you look how far we've come from then. You know, Chris Pratt and uh, Jonah Hill are now on the cover of GQ magazine. Beautiful, beautiful men. Now, there have been very few articles so far pushing back on any of this dogma about bioterrorism or smallpox. Now, one I'm going to read to you now came out on December 2nd, 2001 in the New York Times called When Smallpox Failed by Leonard Cole. Now, Leonard Cole ended up later writing a book about the 2001 anthrax attacks. It's fairly decent. It's not a bad book. But his article is essentially talking about how because a smallpox outbreak happened in 1947 and was quickly contained, that this is why this talk right now about smallpox, bioterror, and how to deal with it is completely overblown. And why it's actually really stupid that we're treating this with such seriousness now. 
He starts off by talking about the catastrophic results of the dark winter exercise. He says, since then, fears of such an attack have grown far more urgent. And last week, the Bush administration announced that it had awarded $428 million for five da, 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 doses of smallpox. But war games are not reality, and history suggests that a real smallpox attack need not result in devastation. In 1947, smallpox suddenly appeared in the United States, and authorities responded with notable success. Apparently, three cases broke out. Some people had come in from Mexico that brought smallpox back in the United States. In the, and I guess this was an example of ring vaccination, but it was mandated. So apparently, the New York City mayor ordered all 7.5 million New Yorkers to get vaccines. Now, I don't know exactly how it was ordered, what the law actually said, but this is how apparently they curbed that potential pandemic. And basically, Leonard Cole is just saying, and this is what he ends his article with, he's saying, amid the current rash of anthrax scares, many people are deeply worried about bioterrorism. Still, the 1947 outbreak gives reason for confidence that the nation could cope effectively with the intentional introduction of smallpox into society especially if the authorities begin now to develop credible plans for dealing with that eventually. So, you know, just a little bit of pushback. The article doesn't really push back that much against the concept. In fact, it's actually advocating for a mandatory emergency ring vaccine program to respond to another outbreak. Uh, but it's also just saying, like, you know, don't fucking freak out. This, this has happened before, and this, like, talk about it basically becoming a full global pandemic is really, really unlikely. I mean, that's basically what this article is saying. Now, this is actually probably the first good news in terms of actual medical professionals, like groups of people putting out statements, pushing back against this dogma. Because on December 4th, 2001, the American Medical Association declines to call for a national smallpox vaccine. This is from the Wall Street Journal. The American Medical Association on Tuesday met in San Francisco to endorse smallpox vaccinations for all Americans. Now, I guess originally the plan was they were going to meet up and essentially agree that this needed to be done. People just assumed it was going to happen. But instead, they refused to endorse and they rejected calls from some doctors who say the disease could be used as a biological weapon. Instead, the 538 delegates attending the annual winter meeting in San Francisco voted overwhelmingly to continue studying the possible repercussions of such a mass inoculation. We do not know yet that the bad guys have the smallpox virus. There are huge, complex issues involved and due deliberation is needed. Some doctors said they worry the vaccine itself could kill as many as 300 people, babies younger then one and people with weakened immune systems wouldn't withstand smallpox vaccinations, according to the consensus at this annual meeting. So already this early, they're starting to get, when I say they, I mean the propagandists and the Bush administration are starting to get pushback from actual large contingents of health professionals. Now, this is interesting just in the same newspaper, actually, they have another article saying quarantine should be last resort for bioterrorism doctors. Now, I don't even know how this 
Oh, I, apparently this came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So this article is responding to a statement they made saying, quarantine should not be the knee-jerk response. We should only quarantine as a last resort. And then only if it's pre-planned in a very, very careful, planned, strategic way. For one thing, a quarantine probably would be ineffective in curbing a terrorist smallpox outbreak because patients are contagious before symptoms appear. Isolating infected patients, closing down mass transportations, or barring large public gatherings all might make more sense, he said. The authors cite three examples to show the potential consequences of quarantines. In 1892, during a cholera outbreak in Europe, New York imposed a quarantine on ships traveling from Europe. Poor passengers were confined below deck without sanitary provisions, and cholera spread disproportionately among them with at least 58 deaths on one ship alone. An outbreak of smallpox in Muncie, Indiana in 1893 resulted in many neighborhoods being quarantined with infected residents confined to their homes and armed guards patrolling the streets. Some residents resisted these guards, and several public health officials were shot. Another example is when plague broke out in San Francisco in 1900, a quarantine was imposed in a Chinese neighborhood, hurting thriving businesses there and causing many of them to close down permanently. Well, that last one, we've already seen many examples of that happening now under the COVID restrictions. So it's strange to think that the last time that this discussion was being had on a mass scale was all about these fears of a smallpox bioterrorism attack. And we only started having these conversations again, like rushing, basically like trying to play catch up when COVID started breaking out here in the United States. I mean, it's disturbing to think that not much was improved or like anything had been really discussed to improve civil liberties. In fact, probably it worsened over time, you know, in the wake of 9-11 with like laws. And I will actually be covering some laws and legislation that was passed um, that, you know, shows that. Now, I didn't bother to tell you because it's kind of redundant at this point, but Anthony Fauci went on C-SPAN at the end of November and did a Q&A, like, you know, call-in thing, just like Michael Moody did, um, pretty much saying the same thing you know, repeating himself, a lot of the same shit he's already said, uh, sort of fear-mongering on behalf of the Bush administration, but also, you know, at times saying things like there is no intelligence, that there's an imminent smallpox attack, there is no reason to believe this is going to happen. He, on some level, is speaking a little differently than some of the other more neoconish fear-mongers who are acting as if this is inevitable, that it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Uh, that is not Fauci's approach. And also Fauci isn't actively saying at times, and sometimes he's saying that it might be necessary, but other times he's saying that it's probably not necessary to give compulsory vaccines to the entire public. Now we have a congressional hearing that includes Richard Spretzel, a former United Nations biological weapons inspector who put out quite a lot of propaganda implying that Iraq had some pretty dangerous pathogens. You also have Bob Menendez, the Democratic U.S. rep, Tom Lantos, another Democrat, Republican congressman named Henry Hyde, and a Brookings Institute senior research analyst named Elisa Harris, who is testifying about the threat of biological 
terrorism and biological weapons. And most of this hearing was actually talking about biological weapons programs in other countries as potential sources. And this is what the C-SPAN subtitle says. Now, who is the one to most prominently speak in this hearing that I didn't name yet? Well, that is Kenneth Alibic, the former deputy director of the Soviet biological weapons program, according to him. Now, again, he makes sure to talk about this very, very large, or so he claims, biological, offensive biological weapons research program that produced things like smallpox and anthrax. The country uh, which was involved in research and develop, uh, development of biological weapons uh, was the Soviet Union. I cannot, uh, let, uh, I cannot uh, accuse Russia, let me say, in any wrongdoing because I have no information, but there are some questions uh, uh, which are still, still unanswered uh, by this country. Uh, describing the Soviet Union's uh, offensive biological weapons program, I would like to say it was a big, very huge, sophisticated, a very powerful program. It was a strictly a military program. I'm talking just about uh, the military program. Uh, there were some uh, other programs uh, uh, ran by uh, KGB, some other entities, but the biggest one was, uh, was a military program. There were several major uh, uh, main, uh, main departments and uh, directorates involved in researching and, and developing and manufacturing biological weapons. Uh, major aid, uh, agents involved in, uh, in research and development were uh, anthrax, plague, laremia, brucellosis, glanders, meliodosis, viral agents like uh, smallpox, uh, Ebola, Marburg hemorrhagic fevers, uh, some encephalitis like Venezuelan equine encephalitis, Japanese encephalitis, uh, some other hemorrhagic fevers. Uh, including, in addition to uh, Ebola and Marburg, Bolivian hemorrhagic fever, Argentinian hemorrhagic fever, Lassa fever, and so on and so forth. Now, I know I said this episode was only going to be two parts long originally. I'm going to have to change the notes to reflect that it is actually going to be a three-part episode because I'm going to sort of wrap up this episode here as we get to the new year. Um, I am mirroring the episode's timeline with the timeline that we are literally about to experience in this current reality and what's about to be 2022 by the time I'm recording this. On December 17th, 2001, an editorial in the New York Times also starts to push back on this internal discussion that people know is being had about making it mandatory to get inoculated against smallpox, even though there is no imminent attack. Now, this is a pretty intelligently written, decent editorial. Um, it kind of, you know, has a, a dumb line of logic at the end saying that, you know, we need to empower Americans against the overwhelming fear of terrorism to make this voluntary choice on their own. We can't take away their agency. I mean, I guess that's a good argument to try to make to appeal to people around that time period. You know, a much easier argument would be this is not likely to happen. It's an extremely, extremely fantasy scenario. The idea of inoculating anybody involuntarily for this is absurd. But if you just want to give yourself a peace of mind and you're consumed by fears of terrorism, then go ahead 
and get the smallpox vaccine if you've already assessed all of the risk factors. That might have been a more intelligently written editorial than this because it's kind of trying to use this line, and I'll just read to you exactly what he says. Americans feel frustrated by terrorism because most can do little, if anything, to defend against it. Voluntary vaccination would give them some power to protect themselves while helping to deter an attack. Surely many Americans would like to have this choice. Now, this guy brings up, obviously, an important point. It's not just that there's a risk about one death in every million people vaccinated, which he talks about. Fauci actually says one to six in one million, whatever that means. I mean, I guess cut it in half, maybe three per million. I don't really know exactly what that means. But he also emphasizes in this editorial, the risk of serious non-lethal complications was greater around one in 10,000. So like serious adverse side effects where you won't die from one in 10,000 people, that's a huge amount. Now, I also haven't mentioned very much in any of this series so far is that there was an anthrax vaccine that was already developed and being given to soldiers. It was actually required in the 1990s called Biothrax. It was a series of something around six to eight different shots that you had to take over the course of two weeks. And apparently, according to people like Whitney Webb and even Merrill Nass, the vaccine as given, you know, who knows what kind of adverse side effects there are, which apparently there are a lot, but that it's not even that effective against anthrax infection. And not only were they talking about pushing smallpox vaccines on the general public, there was some discussions being had about, well, why don't we also make this anthrax vaccine that the military gets available to the public? And then a bunch of people sort of kind of try to bury that discussion because they're like, well, not only is it like more experimental, it's like eight shots and nobody's going to fucking do that. It's like, don't, let's not talk about that right now. Let's just make it all about Cipro and the smallpox vaccine. But see, already leading up to 2002, the new year, there's already sort of a, a slightly growing chorus of mainstream media pushback on this idea of compulsory smallpox vaccination. Another article from December 19th from the Baltimore Sun, an editorial, Smallpox Vaccine Poses Great Danger by Fred Rosen. In light of our recent experience with anthrax, should we vaccinate all Americans against the more deadly bioweapon smallpox? Simply put, if we push forward a widespread program of smallpox vaccination, we will kill thousands of individuals infected with HIV as well as many children suffering from primary immunodeficiency diseases. Also at risk are people with compromised immune systems such as the elderly, patients on steroids, and those receiving chemotherapy. We may be looking at 20 million people who will face adverse reactions to the smallpox vaccine. Future generations will also judge the wisdom of our actions as we react to the terrorist attacks against our country. We will not be judged well if we seek protection against an imaginary threat at the expense of the frailest among us. The public craves maximum immunity from threats both actual and perceived. We reach for the technological fix, the biomedical magic bullet. I love that that's actually referenced in an article about smallpox when we just played you a clip of Mr. Magic Bullet himself, Arlen Specter, talking about how he would give his own 
grandchildren the vaccine, even though he thought it was one in 6,000 people would die from it. I mean, little nice callback here. So we reach for the technological fix, the biomedical magic bullet, but it makes no sense to take extreme action out of fear or simply because we have the resources to do so. We must avoid traveling down a path of hysteria. Well, this is definitely one of the best things I've read so far that's pushed back against us. Too bad it was only in the Baltimore Sun, but like I've been showing you, we have gotten pushback in the month of December 2001 from several major media outlets. Unfortunately, nothing on television yet. They all seem to just be fully towing the line, but somehow we get something in the New York Times and in the Washington Post and in the LA Times that is pushing back against this line of thought. Like, why is this you know, a serious policy discussion when in reality, it's, it's, we should, hey guys, let's fucking calm down a bit. And I think that this tide turned largely because, like I was telling you earlier, those 538 delegates attending the American Medical Association's annual meeting all voted um, against this idea. So I think once you sort of got their opinion in there, the Bush administration at this point knew that it had a much more uphill battle if they were going to try to make smallpox the focus, which it did seem like they were wanted to. I mean, it seems as if the Bush administration was focusing more on this than they were on anthrax, which is odd to say. This is funny. An Associated Press article mentions uh, the thing about Arlen Specter. Somehow, I guess that maybe got picked up by enough people that it became like a quote. Uh, the Associated Press says, that the first smallpox vaccine vials, the new vaccines that were manufactured, will not be ready until late winter, meaning next year, winter of 2002. But already some doctors, politicians are clamoring for the shot that would protect them against a bioterrorist attack. Senator Arlen Specter wants his four granddaughters inoculated State health commissioners and a new Maryland parents group are pressuring federal officials for access to the vaccine. Now, it also mentions something odd that, you know, I'm assuming that this was given FDA emergency approval, but it literally says that the vaccines that are coming, the 209 million doses from Acambis, are for a product that hasn't yet been licensed. And I don't know exactly what that means, why that's important. Now, on January 8th, apparently a law sort of gets quietly passed by the CDC or drafted by the CDC. Now, I don't know if this was ever put to a vote specifically, but this law was called the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, drafted by the CDC and Georgetown Health Policy Professor Larry Gostin. It would allow for forced isolation in the event of a public health emergency. Health officials would also have the power to seize hospitals and property, including cell phones, if they're jamming circuits, identify infected individuals, ration medication, and mandate testing, treatment, and vaccination. The act even allows health officials to call in the militia if they see the need. But beyond specifying that authorities are not allowed to compel people to be vaccinated if it is reasonably likely to lead to serious harm, the law doesn't outline protections for the growing number of immune-suppressed people who may be harmed by the vaccine. Now, that's alarming. 
So again, strange that all these sort of shifts and moves were being made very quietly. I mean, people were very concerned about the Patriot Act, for example, you know, around this time, as they should have been. But where was the concern for this? Was this just sort of going completely under people's radar? Now we're already into the new year, January 10th, 2002. An article from Reuters News Service says that UN experts oppose smallpox stock destruction. The 2002 deadline came and went for destroying the world's remaining stock of smallpox virus. And apparently after they met, they agreed to delay it again. 32 members of this executive board of the UN extended the 2002 deadline for destroying the virus, the samples that exist in Russia, or sorry, the samples that exist in the United States and in Siberia. Now, this is interesting. It says countries such as Japan, which had previously taken the lead in pushing for destruction of the virus, and now they're actually for not destroying it, voiced support for the U.S. position in Thursday's debate. China was the lone dissenting voice but was not able to block the consensus. It is currently not a member of the executive board. We believe early eradication of the virus stocks is the only fundamental guarantee of the eradication of smallpox, Chinese ambassador Sha Zukang said. No one can guarantee that the stocks won't be released. If that were to happen, mankind would be faced with a most devastating biological catastrophe. The final date for destruction should be determined, and there should be no excuse for continued delay. Now, it's just so fascinating when you really zoom out from all this and, you know, you unplug your little empire baby matrix brain plug and think about what this guy's saying. Yeah, it's the U.S. and this other stockpile that's like in the Siberian lab that we should get rid of immediately. Like if you guys are over here fear-mongering constantly about smallpox bioterrorism, I'm sorry, but I fucking worry that you're going to be the terrorists or you're going to be the vessel for terrorism. Like all these stories we spin over here about defectors from the Soviet Union allowing, you know, because of lacks of security or because they need to sell things on the black market, allowing this shit to get into the hands of Libya or Iraq or Iran. I mean, like from China's perspective, it's like, no, you you literally have a fucking lab in Atlanta where you're claiming you're studying this for the betterment of mankind. But how can we fucking trust you? Like you sh destroy this shit, dude. This is the only way to be guaranteed to get rid of it. But you know, the funny part of this is that the U S's argument and these, you know, board at the UN's argument is that because of bioterrorism fears, because we don't know what happened to these supposed stockpiles that Ken Alibic talks about, this is why we need to keep our laboratory samples of it so that we can develop new treatment options. Otherwise, we wouldn't need it. So it is such a fucking convoluted, you know, Machiavellian, like game theory bullshit reason. But here's this poor Chinese ambassador just like saying like the most logical shit ever out of like pretty much any of these articles I've read you. We believe early eradication of the virus stocks is the only fundamental guarantee of the eradication of smallpox. Boom. That's it. That's that's a fact. Because why? How could you trust? You know, like I'm sorry, I just do not trust human beings working with these live viruses that caused global pandemics for hundreds of years to not do it like by accident. Even you know, I mean, Jesus Christ, fucking ridiculous. 
Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci would continue to keep fear-mongering about smallpox, but he would stop short of really leaning into some of like the more neocon openings that the Bush administration would like to use. So, for example, on January 14, 2002, from the Associated Press, Anthony Fauci is quoted as saying that a bioterror attack using smallpox is an extremely realistic possibility, but vaccinating all Americans in advance isn't a good idea. How likely is a smallpox attack? It's a real threat, but you can't put a number on it, said Dr. Anthony Fauci. Fauci, head of the NIH's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, helped handle the anthrax crisis and is considered among the top candidates to become the NIH's new director. Well, he is the NIH's new director. Now, over the month of January 2002, it's announced that the CDC is starting to try to map the genome of smallpox after granted a request to not have the small to not have the stockpiles destroyed by the year 2002. Well, that's fascinating because I thought that they were doing that the entire time. Wouldn't weren't they already keeping it around so that they could map the genome of it since the Clinton era? I mean, he literally mentions sequencing the genome for smallpox. So this just does not add up. And I think we get our answer as to why this reasoning doesn't add up only five days later, because U.S. AMRID and Fort Detrick, in a Baltimore Sun article, announced that they are doing breakthrough in research with smallpox. Army scientists infect monkeys for the first time. It's a very valuable step. In a breakthrough that could lead to better vaccines and drugs to protect against bioterrorist attacks, scientists from the Army's Biodefense Research Center at Fort Detrick have succeeded in fatally infecting monkeys with smallpox. The experiments by Army scientists working at the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta represent the first time that animals have developed full-blown smallpox resembling the human disease. It's a very, very valuable step, said Raymond Zelinskis, a bioterrorism expert at the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Even though they used a massive dose that wouldn't be found in nature, there's a lot that can be learned because there's never before been an animal model for smallpox. One reason people resist this research is because it provides a rationale for smallpox retention. One of the central tenets of the case for smallpox for smallpox destruction has been removed. I mean, okay. So again, they're just readily admitting in this CDC like press release that killing monkeys with smallpox as part of research is part of the reason rationale for keeping it around. So it's really not to map the genome of it. It's to kill monkeys with it and then say that we're making like stronger vaccines with these experiments. China vigorously dissented to the decision not to destroy the last supplies of smallpox, warning that a most devastating biological catastrophe could result if smallpox stocks are not eliminated. And they talked to one of the guys and sort of asked him, well, how do we know we can trust like people who work with these pathogens if it looks like the anthrax in the mail is a close genetic match of the army's AIM strain? 
And the doctor responds. He says he believes the government's lab's security is very good and getting better. But he recognizes the paradoxical danger posed by proliferating defensive research. The one thing that is hard to grapple with is the possibility of a determined insider. We are being asked quite reasonably to take a hard look at the character of the people who have access to these pathogens. Construction of new laboratories capable of handling extremely hazardous organisms is proposed at the University of Texas. I mean, what's absolutely bizarre is it says they are infecting monkeys with smallpox at Fort Detrick in Maryland as part of the CDC research using their live smallpox samples. And yet they end up charging Bruce Ivins. Fort Detrick army scientist of the anthrax attack saying that it's an inside job. So was Bruce Ivins also involved in trying to help them develop a better smallpox vaccine with these monkeys, giving them smallpox? I mean, that's pretty fucked up. I mean, I'm saying it's, you know, not any more fucked up than killing humans, but it's, it would be weird if he was involved in that. And again, we have more pushback in the Baltimore Sun. The Baltimore Sun actually seems to be one of the better outlets reporting on this. And I'm going to end the podcast here just with, you know, a warning from an insider official who is part of John Hopkins, which is really plugged into a lot of this fear-mongering and, you know, scary research. Uh, this Baltimore Sun article says, Hopkins Dean ruse smallpox research. Summer criticizes army monkey tests. The dean of the John Hopkins School of Public Health has denounced research being conducted by army scientists to infect monkeys with smallpox, saying that it morally undermines the war against terrorism and sets a dangerous example for other countries. Dr. Alfred Summer, who helped battle a smallpox epidemic in Bangladesh three decades ago, has urged governments to destroy all remaining stocks of smallpox. He fears proliferating smallpox research could reverse the eradication of smallpox as a disease. He's basically saying the same thing as the Chinese ambassador. We don't need this virus, which has caused so much horror and suffering for centuries. It's one thing having the virus locked in a box. That's scary enough. Giving it to monkeys is another. It's just a terrible idea. If we don't lead a charge to get rid of smallpox, every country is going to scurry to build up its stocks. Another public health dean, Dr. Alan Rosenfield of Columbia, says, I think the fact that the military is working with smallpox, no matter what we say, will raise the specter that it could be used as a weapon. Or for doing research, other countries will say, why can't everyone else? And then as a defense against this, the guy who's doing the research or leading it at Fort Detrick says that animal experiments are crucial for the development of tools for early diagnosis, safer vaccines, and new antiviral drugs. I think the U.S. government has made the decision that defense against smallpox as a bioterrorist weapon is a national priority. I think it's our moral obligation to bring our best scientific resources to bear on the problem. It's almost a theological debate, said Jonathan B. Tucker, a bioterrorism expert. On one side, there are the retentionists, he said, who believe the United States must keep its smallpox samples for limited research. On the other are the destructionists who argue that the world should make the attempt to eliminate smallpox from the earth once and for all. It also mentions that the last two cases of smallpox, one of them fatal, occurred as a result from the leak from a research laboratory in Birmingham, England. 
And the guy working on the Fort Detrick monkey research says, there is a risk of virus escaping from a lab. He said, is it small? We hope it's zero, but it never is. Now, this is interesting too, because I wonder if this was just one person's opinion or if this changed the view of a lot of people. Because it did seem like the deadline to destroy the world's stockpile of smallpox was set for 2002. Um, other than the anthrax attacks happening, what made people think that it was you know, a good idea to extend that deadline? And this article ends by saying, Dr. Frank M. Kalia, an infectious disease specialist and vice dean of the University of Maryland School of Medicine, said the anthrax attacks of last fall have changed his view. Before October, I would have said, get smallpox off the planet. But the anthrax experience has made me circumspect. Based on the current climate and the fact that we're basically at war, I think we owe it to the American people to learn as much as possible about this virus. Now, just like the last episode of this podcast, I'm going to end it with a large portion of clips from something that I would describe as a spiritual sequel to Operation Dark Winter. There was what you would call a mockumentary of sorts aired on the BBC, February 5th, 2002. This documentary, this fake documentary, was called Smallpox 2002. It was actually simulating a smallpox bioterrorist attack and what the results of that would be like, starring a lot of really good actors, British TV actors, even starring Brian Cox of Succession doing the narration of this fake documentary. And what this fake documentary plays out is pretty much the exact scenario in Dark Winter. It's almost as if they took Dark Winter and turned it into like a War of the World-style fake TV broadcast, you know, while I guess warning the viewers that it was fictional. But apparently a lot of people at home watching this on TV thought that it was real. This was also later aired on the FX network in the United States on January 2nd, 2005. Why it was aired so much later, it's hard to say. What's interesting, it says the film was commissioned before the September 11th attacks, and includes false interviews and stock footage. The tagline for the movie was drama until it happens. It was directed by Daniel Percival, who also made a very sus documentary, or not documentary, a dramatization of a dirty bomb attack in the UK called Dirty Wars. Or I think it's called Dirty War. Anyways, Daniel Percival is also responsible for directing and being responsible for the Hot Zone Season 2 dramatization of the 2001 anthrax attacks, which is very propagandistic and has some outright lies and just complete made-up shit in it, especially about Bruce Ivins to make it seem like he's way crazier and looks way more like the mur you know, the potential murder behind those attacks than he actually did. But the premise of this movie, it's not exactly like Operation Dark Winter in the sense that it starts differently. A man creates smallpox virus himself, infects himself, and then touches 10 people in New York City, which eventually leads to the deaths of 60 million people. Now, there are figures that, similar to how Dark Winter presents, you know, has real-life government officials playing these sort of imaginary roles or actual real roles that they played in real life. This documentary has actors playing some, like, slightly reworded roles like instead of 
Office for New York City Emergency Management. It's like Office for New York City something terrorism prevention. And the actor who's playing the guy looks like Jerome Hauer, even though he's not called Jerome Hauer in the documentary. They fictionalize everything. But it's just super weird. This is another one of those examples of another piece of programming or media. And this is something that a, a researcher named Shoestring911, who's really good at digging up things about stuff like this, um, he's put a ton of entries in History Commons. But this is another one of those examples of a bizarre, produced before 9-11 piece of media that perfectly plays into the post-9-11 era that's like happening right around the time that like the anthrax attacks had just happened, talking about a smallpox attack right in the middle of all the news hysteria circulating in the media in late 2001 and early 2002 about smallpox bioterrorism. And it's just such a weird fucking coincidence. So I will end this episode of Media Roots Radio, this for now locked episode for our subscribers only. It will be unlocked later. But I will end this episode with clips from this British TV produced, seems like a textbook example of a government propaganda movie fake documentary film smallpox 2002 have a happy new year everybody take care we knew that smallpox existed that it could be used as a bioterrorism um, weapon and i had been trying for a long time to get people to be proactive in this to be creating more um, vaccine, to establish a workbook of exactly what we should be doing should something like this happen. It wasn't until the anthrax attacks that people took me seriously. Everybody lost somebody. There wasn't anybody that I knew of, who had heard of who hadn't lost friends, family. It was a global grieving. This was every single human being on the planet who was affected by this horrific illness. And we hadn't got over it. Because we're still living in fear. We used to believe that the greatest threat to the United States were the nuclear arsenals of a rogue state. But in this world today, a terrorist with the will to sacrifice his own life, armed only with a penknife and a pilot's license, is capable of anything. The greatest threat, as we now know, to our lives and security is a single individual with a $50 chemistry set and the will to decimate the planet. In 2002, 60 million people worldwide were killed by a disease no one had seen for over 20 years. It was the greatest act of mass murder in history.
in the 20th century, smallpox killed more people than all the century's wars combined. It is one of the most contagious airborne viruses known to man. A third of those who contract the disease die. In 1962, the World Health Organization launched a vaccination campaign to rid the world of smallpox forever. By 1980, they had succeeded. Vaccination stopped. The only living samples of the virus were safely locked inside two maximum security laboratories, one in Russia and one in the United States. Or so the world believed. Pretty standard day in the ER. Uh, you had trauma victims, drunks, asthmatics. There's also a mild flu epidemic going on in the city at that time. So when Cynthia came into the ER and was complaining of a fever, it was pretty standard. Uh, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. 29-year-old sales assistant Cynthia Sheldon had been feeling unwell for 24 hours. She brought herself to Long Island College Hospital, where she was treated by Dr. Carl Jocelyn. She had a, a high fever, but nothing that was too alarming. She was complaining of headache, back pain. Um, she had a mild rash at that time on her hands. Uh, just kind of red. Uh, but it wasn't anything that I considered to be outside of uh, a symptomatic of the flu. A routine anthrax test on Cynthia came back negative. So I did what I, any other doctor would have done, gave her some Tylenol, told her to drink plenty of fluids uh, and get plenty of rest. If anything had gone wrong, come back in a couple of days and we, we check her out. Um, she went home. For the previous six months, the Department of Health had been on heightened alert for any unusual outbreaks of disease. Dr. Sam Wiseman was the head of New York's bioterrorism unit. We're very proud of our surveillance system here in New York City. We are always looking to find trends in illness. We have a very sophisticated monitoring system. We monitor 911 calls, hospital discharges, pharmacy orders, even the city morgue. Uh, we can tell you if there's a run on aspirin. But on April 11th, we had nothing, not a clue, to suggest uh, the enormity of what was about to happen. At 6.20 that evening, Cynthia Sheldon was brought back to Long Island College Hospital. Her state had deteriorated greatly. Fever was very high, and the rash that she had before on her hands had spread over her body and had uh, 
had erupted into these, these small pus-filled blisters that were all up and down her arms and on her face. When I examined her further, I found that the, the blisters were all over, uh, up and down her torso, on her neck, down the inside of her throat. I, it obviously wasn't the flu, um, but I didn't know exactly what it was, only that it looked highly infectious. It's still not clear why Long Island College Hospital in Brooklyn has sealed off its emergency room. There's some speculation that this could be another bioterrorist scare. And in the past hour, we've seen people entering the hospital in protective clothing. My cell phone went off, and it was the infectious disease doctor from Long Island College Hospital was calling. And he said they had a young woman in their isolation unit, and uh, would I come down and take a look at her? Earlier, we saw Dr. Sam Wiseman, epidemiologist for the New York City Department of Health, but he refused to make any comment. What I saw when I went in was a woman who was delirious. Her face was swollen, probably beyond recognition for those who knew her. Her eyes were shut and tearing, and she was not alert. I can't describe to you the fear that I felt. It was overwhelming. Sam Wiseman was convinced he was looking at a case of smallpox. His first priority was to establish how widespread this outbreak might be. The Department of Health immediately faxed every hospital in the five boroughs of the city, requesting information on any patients that might be showing early symptoms of the disease. Within a half an hour, we were hearing about possible cases in four of the five boroughs. But worse than that, 15 of the hospitals that we heard from had not only seen such cases in the last 48 hours, but had sent them home, just the way Cynthia had been sent home. And I said, my God, uh, there are all these people out there spreading this disease in a geometric fashion. One uh, person infects 20, 20 infects another 20, and so on and so forth. And they won't even know that they're infected until they become sick, uh, 10 to 12 days later, at which point they're infectious. By 10 o'clock that night, over 30 suspected cases of smallpox had been identified. It would take 24 hours before the disease could be confirmed by laboratory diagnosis. But a plan of action was needed. The mayor called a crisis meeting at the Office of Emergency Management. Present were Dr. Richard Benson from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Kathleen O'Reilly, head of the New York office of the FBI, and Jack Hill, head of the Office of Emergency Management. I said we had to contain the virus and keep it from spreading, which meant that we had to mobilize the National Guard, we had to close down the airports, the train stations, to um, restrict um, movement of anybody in and out of the city, that we had to vaccinate anybody that had been exposed to the virus, and we had to quarantine anybody who had contracted smallpox. That's basically what we're talking about. What we had was a handful of unconfirmed smallpox cases. No one had died, and we didn't even know if we were dealing with smallpox at all. 
what Jack wanted to do was to shove the whole city down, and uh, that would do nothing but create panic. And what we had learned from the anthrax crisis was the last thing you need to do in a medical emergency is, is to have any kind of panic. The hospitals get overcrowded, the ambulances can't get to the hospitals, the streets are jammed with people trying to flee the city. Uh, no, I, I told Jack at the time I, I did not think that was uh, an option. Overreaction provokes panic. And at that time, we didn't know what we were dealing with. Was it a deliberate release or was it an accident from a lab? Uh, was it confined to New York, or would we find cases popping up all over the United States? How many people were infected? We needed a clear and measured response to keep the public on side. I felt the overreaction was appropriate. I didn't think it was an overreaction, but I thought it was appropriate. They didn't, and um, they succeeded, and I didn't. In the past few hours, we have received reports from a number of New York hospitals of a possible outbreak of an infectious disease. As a precaution, it was agreed that anyone who had been in direct contact with a suspected case should be vaccinated. In the meantime, no further action was deemed necessary at that stage. There is absolutely no need for alarm. The situation is being closely monitored and the public will be updated as soon as we have anything new to report. Mr. Yes, Mr. Beth. Is this an act of violent terrorism? 4,000 miles away in Geneva, the World Health Organization was checking for any smallpox outbreaks elsewhere in the world. But by the time New York had diagnosed its first case, it was already too late. The virus had moved on. CDC in Atlanta have confirmed that the New York outbreak is smallpox. Within 24 hours, 38 new cases were confirmed in New York, plus six further cases in three other countries. New York City is reeling this morning after confirmation of an outbreak of smallpox. People on the streets are taking whatever precautions they can, but the mood of New Yorkers is clearly fearful. First it was anthrax, now this. I don't know what's going on. I'm scared. I'm scared for my family. I'm scared for my friends. Did a lot of people not show up to work today? Yeah, a lot of people are afraid, not coming in, not showing up, and it's kind of crazy. In other parts of the city, worried parents have been taking their children out of school. How worried are you about your daughter? Why should I put my children at risk? I'm very concerned about my children's health and safety. Do you feel you're getting enough information about the epidemic? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As the anxiety of New Yorkers grew, the city's hospitals were becoming overwhelmed. It was uh, chaotic. The worried wealth came out in droves. You had to deal with those people who weren't even, didn't have smallpox, but, you know, just had a flu. Uh, and it was a big guessing game in terms of who was what. And then once you decided who did have smallpox, well, where were you going to put them? There was only so many negative pressure rooms that we had and isolation wards until things started to fill up. And it was difficult because for us, we had a limited amount of vaccine at our disposal.
As the United Kingdom's smallpox epidemic continues to escalate, hospitals... By day 11, outbreaks were confirmed in Glasgow, Manchester, Bristol and Birmingham. The UK was in the grip of a major nationwide epidemic. ...to those at risk of infection. Anyone suffering from the following symptoms, fever, cramps or any sign of skin rash, is advised not to travel. They should stay at home and call the helpline and medical support will be provided. Command of the crisis in London was now in the hands of Chief Superintendent Clive McAdams. At this stage, the Department of Health don't feel it's necessary to mass vaccinate. But I will say that as we speak, vaccination is going on. A decision had been made to withhold information about the size of the UK vaccine stockpile. Yes, sir. Um, Chief Superintendent, could you respond to recent rumours in the press that there's not enough vaccine in the country to contain the epidemic? Now, we have a perfectly adequate stockpile of vaccines to contain and control this epidemic. But can you confirm what the actual figure is? I'm sure you'll appreciate that it's a matter of national security. I'm not at liberty to discuss the actual figure. Suffice to say that we have enough to meet all anticipated demands. There was roughly 14 million doses of vaccine. We weren't sure about that figure. That was the other thing. We weren't actually sure. It was a vague figure, but even so, 14 million vaccine. There are 60 million people in the UK. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that only a quarter of the UK are going to be vaccinated. And if that information had gone out, it would have led to well, mass panic. But by refusing to go public with the figures, it appeared the government had something to hide. The press immediately became suspicious. They published inaccurate information. And just when we needed the public most, they started to disbelieve what we had to tell them. Once the public had seen those figures, there was a kind of domino effect of panic. And we lost control. Despite the Department of Health's insistence that there's no significant risk to hauliers, the Transport and General Workers' Union is supporting its drivers' demands for vaccine. To me, it's, it's, it's pathetic, really, because we're driving all over the country and I haven't been vaccinated at all. And I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm going back home now because I don't want to spread the disease around, around my area, around my, my family. With almost no trucks delivering, panic buying led to food and fuel shortages. Within days, London transport workers joined the protest, refusing to work unless they too received vaccine.